If the whole world learns these tools, we are going to live in a society that is more peaceful, that is more respectful, because when you have human beings that are self-confident and they're compassionate, you start changing the way we interact with each other and we start changing the way that we live our lives. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit Podcast. As always, thank you guys for listening and watching, and please don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button. So before we get to our very special guest today, let's kick it off with our Patreon question of the day, which is, if you were going to go back to an ancient time and be a part of a civilization or group, which one would it be? Oh, an ancient time. So we're talking like thousands of years ago. Yes, got to be ancient. Okay. Wait, because my kids call me ancient now. So are we talking about like the 1900s or do we got to yeah, go back? Yeah, you can just go back from your you time You know what I'm period. talking about? Because I was born back in the 1900s, man. <laughs> Completely different vibe than what they're dealing with this day and age. Uh, what's yours? I'm of Rome. I'd probably have to go back to Rome. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we guys think about Rome, the Roman civilization every day. So I've heard that's the thing. Yeah, it's true, for whatever reason. I'm gonna have to steal that one, and go to Rome as well for two reasons. One, I would really like to see the beginning of the insertion of the old martial arts before we even have na had names for them. And my dad is from Rome. Really? And yeah, my dad is Italian, so. I not Italian, the Roman, which what uh, they yeah. call themselves. Yeah, That's right. and um, and I lived in Europe for years, and I've never been to Rome. So oh my gosh! Oh, oh well, you need to. We've yeah. gone probably seven times or oh, so. Wow. We loved Rome. I, I belong there a little bit back in the day. I could feel it. It's one of our favorite <laughs> cities we've ever gone to. We keep going back because we love it so much. It, you definitely have to go there. Um, I think mine would either be Rome or the Spartan times because seeing just the movies on how the moms raise their children and just to be these stoic badasses, I feel like I, they could, were. I could fit in there. Yeah. So I would say either. I know there's a civilization off the top of my head that I'm not thinking about right now, but anyways, that, what you got? I think it would be so cool to be an old style ninja. Oh, yeah, like a... Uh, we're yeah. talking about feudal Japan. Go, dude, that would be sick. Yeah. Well, now, now we're talking like being an emperor and empress. Now, that's different now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all they do over there is fight. Mm -hmm. And even when you talk about women empowerment, back in the day, the empress used to command all the, the troops at the time. Yeah. Which was really interesting because it was more in terms of aristocracy and who had the power at the time and not so much about... It was more strategic, whoever commanded, and then that shifted into who could also go on the field and, and train the troops and et cetera. But back in the day, 
we had some women making very important decisions, believe it or not, yeah. I'm reading a book, The Chinese History of Martial Arts, and it talks about it thousands oh, wow. of years ago. That's Sung Tzu so cool. talks about it. Yeah. Women mm -hmm. get, and how they train them to get all, it was pretty amazing. The yeah. way she kept things in line. Y'all can do that. And a little hidden secret the men keep from y'all is behind any powerful guy, there's a, there's a woman right there. Mm -hmm. There's got to be a balance, because otherwise guys just fight till no end. True. Or yeah. right next to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's the way it works. And it has to be an opposite of balance, for sure. That's awesome. I agree. So today we are joined by the one and the only Cecilina Gracie, an inspiring advocate for female empowerment, an accomplished athlete, and a TV presenter. She's the granddaughter of Grandmaster Carlos Gracie Sr., the founder of the world-famous Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu movement and the UFC. She also runs an empowerment school in Los Angeles using jiu-jitsu's philosophy to help females discover their inner strength. Cecilina's exceptional journey even includes a historic Mount Everest summit during the deadliest season in 102 years, also with just seven weeks of training. How crazy is that? Welcome to the show. Seven weeks of training. So, I mean, people usually train for years to do that. And then multiple attempts, and you did it all in the My all brother in and I keep putting that on our chart of this, you know, the things to do. So the fact that you've done that, that's... Mm -hmm. I think there's a checklist of how people they accomplish in certain arenas, and that's one of them. When you hear people have done that, it says a, just a litany of things about you. Yeah. But before we get down into all that, like, start with your family. Is that Okay. Absolutely. Can we go to grandfather? I'm curious. Let's do it. <laughs> all right, all right. I'm just, I'm just curious because we were talking about this earlier, and I'll never forget when I was introduced to your family. I remember when I was sitting. I remember where I was wearing. It's kind of like 9-11. But, I mean, it was that impactful. Tell us about it. I would love yeah, to November hear that 12, story. Yeah, 1993 is when... Oh, my gosh, the first Yeah, the first UFC. one. Yeah. I've been studying martial arts since I was a boy. My father put me in, started in with judo, and then just like every other kid around the block. You know, The Karate Kid was an impactful movie before Navy SEALs came online. <laughs> but nothing hit as hard as when that happened. I, and I, I mean, I could imagine, I, I just wanted to I, I ask you this question too, but things change overnight. Uh, they had to have changed for your family overnight because, I mean, y'all automatically were a household name in ours. Mm -hmm. So when that all started with your grandfather, right? And he learned from a guy who learned from the inventor of judo. Is that correct? We can go back, go all the way back. Yes. Yeah, to George and Mary, right? Is that yeah. the <laughs> So, jujitsu, the traditional jujitsu back in Japan, was a practice that they used in war for close combat if you lost your sword. Back in the day, there were 18 martial arts, different clans that had different practices in Japan. And they all ended with jitsu, which meant like the practice that they had. So Kenjitsu was, you know, the kind of fighting with swords. Baijitsu, which horses. And then they had Jujitsu, which was close combat. After the war, they unified everything because the samurais lost their role in society. Wars, yeah, wars without wars. Yeah. And unfortunately what happened was some people decided to teach jiu-jitsu and try to share the principles that they had, but a lot of them started doing fixed fights and fighting for money and denigrating the image of the practice at the time and just started drinking and getting into brawls. So jiu-jitsu started having a 
negative connotation in within society. So what happened was they had a meeting with all of the leaders and they decided to call it judo because at the time they tried to introduce jiu-jitsu into schools and it was rejected as one of the systems to be implemented in everyone's education. And when that happened, they realized we need almost a rebranding. We yeah. need to reintroduce this art into society from a different lens. And they focus a little bit more on the stand-up and they called it judo. And they just set a ground, ground rules and every single jiu-jitsu master at the time started calling judo and practicing that. And some of the rules were you're not going to get into fixed fights, you're not going to have a set of attitudes that could potentially be negative to the image. And some people continued practicing jiu-jitsu. They traveled to other countries. And one of them was Mitsuya Maeda, which his presentation name was Konjikoma. And he landed in Brazil. And at the time, my great-grandfather, Gaston, he owned a circus. Mm. And he hired Konjikoma to do a presentation at that circus. What year is this, or roughly? Oh, wow, early 1900s. Or, okay. Yeah. And at the time when he saw what jiu-jitsu was and the discipline and the composure and the elegance of the movements, everything that he was looking for his son, because my grandfather at the time was an extremely troubled kid. You know, they called him... Um, the terror of the neighborhood. And there's a funny story that there were several mango trees in his neighborhood on his street at the time. And one of the things that he did was he falsely claimed that all of the mango trees were his. Mm. So if he saw another kid climbing the tree, he would fight them. So he was fighting every day. <laughs> they said he had ADHD, he had a really hard time in school. And every night when his dad came back from work, there was a line of neighbors waiting for him to complain. Oh, he broke my window, he did this, he did that. And for the first time when he saw that practice, it was almost like this little light bulb lit up in his life. And he was like, this is the thing that my son needs that I wasn't able to provide for him yet. Mm -hmm. And he signed him up to train with Konjikoma. So my grandfather was you know, the, the first Gracie to be exposed to the art. He was the oldest sibling. And How from, old at this? You know when he started? How old he was? Teenager? I, he was a teenager. teenager. Yeah, he was really young. And That's from, the best thing about martial arts. And I don't care about which one it is. It's kind of like the religions. I mean, you get them into that study, and it, it gets a discipline that goes with that. To, and the worst kids. The wildest. Not worst. You shouldn't say worst, right? Because look what he... What there's no we, bad kids. No bad kids. Yeah, there's Absolutely. bad environments for kids. The environment. Yeah. Wherever you put them, they'll act like a child. So if you put them in a place that the adults don't like that, then that's just how it's going to go. And the... You got to think sport and everything had to have come around, too, so we, would, we wouldn't do stupid stuff. We would just concentrate on sport. Here's what I love about martial arts is that, especially jiu-jitsu, it, it's an equalizer of emotions for kids. So jiu-jitsu is going to honor your personality. So if you are a shy kid, it won't necessarily turn you into the most extroverted, outspoken kid. But what's going to allow you is to set boundaries to protect that space that is important for you to preserve for yourself so you can honor your personality. And if you are too aggressive, or if you're a child like my grandfather at the time that doesn't have an outlet, why are we behaving this way? Because I don't have an outlet to express myself, so I'm gonna do these crazy things because I need help. Kids also need boundaries. And when you provide a space for a kid, for example, that maybe is being aggressive out of insecurity, which is most cases, now they have an outlet. And not only that, they have a safe space to express themselves and to have all that energy directed towards a constructive path. 
instead of a destructive path. Because ultimately, what you're dealing with is the basic elements of every human being. And if you have a kid that is energetic, that is healthy. Now, how do you direct that energy towards something that is going to be constructive so eventually that kid doesn't maybe turn into drinking or, you know, getting into constant fights? Because it's going to turn into something. It's going to turn into something. Okay, so with your grandfather, he's a young teenager, and he starts training with him. How did he take that? Was he Did he fight it at first and not want to be disciplined? Or... Yeah, did, did he, he soak did, that in? Exactly. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, did it take a long time for this to set in, for him to be able to teach this to to be this impactful, or was it just like love at first sight? He went in there, and or do you do you know that? I do know that, and it's an excellent question. He was hooked from the first minute he stepped on the mat. Like it's his purpose. He could feel on the air, in the air, the atmosphere that he had been looking for, and that is the power of jujitsu. Nobody needs to tell you where you're going to find in their environment because when you walk in, the systems that are in place already teach you before you even hear a word from your coach. Yeah. The, the connection and the interactions between the teammates, the posture on the mats, everything you've been looking for speaks for itself. And it's interesting because on his first session, the... Mitsuo Maeda was doing a demonstration and he called other students and he was demonstrating a rear naked choke and my grandfather wanted to be the person, you know, to participate in the demonstration and he said, no, it's not today, it's not for you or I don't want this to be your first experience and my grandfather was super reluctant regarding that. He was like, I want this, like, what do you mean? And he insisted and he was brought into the demonstration and he almost passed out. So he saw immediately what the power of that art was and the incredible responsibility that came with it. And this is me interpreting what he went through, but I believe that from the get-go he realized this is a tool for self-development and I'm not here to learn how to fight. I'm here to feel powerful and feel capable without having to look powerful and without having to look capable because he never looked capable. He was a frail man. Hmm. You know, he was skinny. He was small compared to the other people. So for the first time, he could feel powerful internally. And that's the beautiful thing about jiu-jitsu is that it lives on the inside. You do not walk on the streets and go, this guy's a jiu-jitsu fighter. Yeah. Maybe now they have, you know, the, the ears, but yeah, nobody yeah, yeah, in my yeah. family have the now ears. Now you know what you're looking for. <laughs> If you can identify it, that that's that's a, absolutely. So did the uh, neighborhood, did they actually see a change in his behavior? Absolutely. The line was gone. Uh. There were no more neighbors <laughs> waiting to complain because now he was spending his time elsewhere, you know, oh instead of gosh. climbing trees and throwing rocks. And ultimately, what is the kid doing? They're trying to get attention. Mm -hmm. They're trying to be useful. They're trying to stay busy. And... They're trying to find a purpose. So did ultimately. your great-grandfather implement that art into the circus? Or was it just for his son's discipline? It was just a presentation. He didn't even know it was oh going to turn into something for his son. Yeah. And after he saw what jiu-jitsu was, nobody had ever seen that. We're yeah. talking about this tiny village in Belém do Pará in Brazil. It's not even one of the main cities. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody had ever heard of jiu-jitsu. Nobody lived from jiu-jitsu. Yeah. And that was the biggest contribution that my family did to the sport. You know, I like to say that my grandfather is a pioneer. It's so hard to say who was the founder. You know, mm -hmm. we can go back 3,000 years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, and people argue about that. That's just something yeah. to argue about. That's something <laughs> yeah. to talk about, not argue about, right? Yeah. You're supposed to be... Sure, absolutely. You do that for days, yeah. weeks, forever. Right. Do you know, um, just from your family stories, what 
the wardrobe was when he first started? It was already kimonos. It, it was, was already geese. Yeah. So that started in Japan because in the beginning, why is jiu-jitsu based in joint locks? Because at the time at war, they focused on submissions on the parts of the body that were exposed. You so you have arm bars yeah. because your armor is exposed, right? So between your helmet and your armor, your neck is exposed. So we have chokeholds, you have footlocks. So every joint of your body that needs to have motion is gonna be exposed. So that's how they start developing these techniques to submit their opponent, to finish you know, the fight, the battle in a way that would impair your opponent from continuing the fight. Yeah. And later on when the war was over and they started practicing jujitsu and trying to spread that through society, they started wearing their everyday clothes, which are kimonos for the Japanese. And then we just made the material a little thicker and we still use it this day, obviously, to honor tradition. And it's also great, it protects your skin. Instead of you leaving all bruised and people grabbing each other and you know you have a second layer, but it's, um, it's important to also, when you wear something, when you put something on, it's almost, there is a shift in your brain that goes, okay, now I'm ready. Mm -hmm. So with that starting off in such a small area of Brazil, how did it just spread like wildfire? It's so interesting. So when my grandfather realized that this was a tool for self-development, he fell in love with jiu-jitsu and he had no idea how am I going to make a living out of this? Because we have to think about how society was structured back in the day. You were either a lawyer, an engineer. It was very specific roles in society. Women weren't working. They were barely voting. And anything that went against tradition was a huge risk for the family. So it's not like he got a lot of support. But his relationship with his father was very troubled. It was very difficult. So he decided to branch out on his own and discover how can I explore this and he moved to Sao Paulo and first he went to the police academy and tried to show them some of the moves and start training the police officers there. He went back to Rio and then he ran into a student from the old ages of this school in Belém do Pará when they were living in Rio and his student said I am going to Belo Horizonte which is another state and I'm training the police there. I need somebody to help me. Would you come with me? So then he went with him and he ended up becoming the head instructor of that whole program. And that's when he started realizing, oh, I can make a living out of this. So then he went to Sao Paulo, opened a school there. Then he went to Rio and opened like the main practice, like the real gym. And they started teaching students. But he realized that the way to spread the word like wildfire was to challenge other martial arts because nobody knew what jiu-jitsu was. And instead of trying to convince people, how about we show them? So let's challenge the karate master, let's challenge the boxing champion. And my grandfather started organizing just challenge fights. And same thing that happened in the UFC, the, the people would come in and you almost have to tap them out five times for them to go like, okay, what is this? Maybe I need to learn it. Because the first three times they don't even know what happened, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then the other ones are like, oh, you just got one over on me, but it just keeps going <laughs> down, right? Just keep, yeah, absolutely. So they're just getting their ass beat. And this is the time when martial arts are kind of, they, they weren't online, but they're coming online when you're talking about the 1950s 60s now and that's that's like bruce lee era that's when kung fu movies started making it arise but the interesting thing is that at that time what was revolutionary about jiu-jitsu is that bruce lee films if you actually look at the distance that the fight is fought they were really far from each other so jiu-jitsu essentially the principles of jiu-jitsu the main one being connection and distance management it changed the distance that the fight is fought because now you need to, you will choose if you're in within reach 
or without reach because you need to close the distance eventually to take the person down to the ground and then submit them. So if you're too far from each other, yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah, and you can see how people who don't like to fight, they don't like to sit next to somebody on the train or anything. That, that, that type of martial art, the distance with the legs and the arms would always be preferable because they didn't want to get up and start wrestling. People are just scared to do that. People are scared to gee up and, and, and get even go down on the ground with people until y'all came along and showed you that, hey, it's, there's an art to it as well. You just don't walk in there. Like, if you walk into, into a jiu-jitsu gym and you get your ass beat the first, like, badly, that's a bad coach. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, if you, you break their sparring. spirit at a young age and make them more scared than they were before they walked in there, I mean, that's, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. But even that philosophy, so the, the second contribution that my family did, because the first one was, yes, they proved the efficiency of jiu-jitsu to the rest of the world. Oh, yeah, y'all did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second one was they created a methodology that can be passed on to everyone. And that's what they didn't have at the time. So the way that my grandfather and Helio, they did everything together, right? They, when they, he opened the school and Helio was the youngest of the siblings and they started working together and he was introduced into jiu-jitsu, became a teacher, and, and they took that on, is they realized how can we teach this weapon of war to civilians because if the whole world learns these tools we are going to live in a society that is more peaceful that is more respectful because when you have that's what it does human beings that are self-confidence and they're compassionate you start changing the way we interact with each other and we start changing the way that we live our lives yeah that's human nature that's in our dna code for whatever reason been around long enough and seen enough fighting that there are people like, well, if you train them to do that, they're going to use it. I'm like, no, there's something that comes with it. That's the void. There's a discipline and a respect that comes with knowing somebody has put the work in that, that does that. I couldn't even imagine what your family reunions would be like. It, and we were talking about, I just want to know, if you got everyone in the family that can scrap, everyone, then fighting is pointless. So y'all must be really good at cutting each other down and in the verbiage, right? Just getting people off guard with something that they do because what's the point of really going to the fist or to the ground? Well, the interesting thing is just to give context. So my grandfather had 21 children. I, I know. Y'all have. It's amazing. 21. 21. And that's, that it just oh keeps. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't so, even imagine what that would be like at y'all's family reunion. It's got to be awesome. Yeah. 21 children. 21 with children. Like 12 woman? or 15 are black Not belts, right? Woman. I mean, so the thing was. They were all raised in the same house. My grandfather had what would that like? kids with six different women, but his, his, the last woman, the main woman of his life was my grandmother. He had six kids with her, but she raised a lot of them because they all lived in her house. So my mother grew up in a house that the second floor was the kids' floor. They had 18 bedrooms, and every two bedrooms had a bathroom in between. So it was like nine little apartments she would literally ride the bicycle from her room to her brother's room because if you constantly have to borrow something, like how many miles are you running? Dude, did y'all just wear your geese every day? Does like everyone just walk around the house in geese? That's what yeah, it is, oh, right? Yeah, we had like a huge laundry room. It was hundreds of geese. And the pecking order, like the respect order. I want to know about that. Oh, that's really interesting because that even came in the way how they ate their meals. So there was that's a huge right. like bell that first the older kids would eat and then they would ring the bell. Okay, now the younger kids... Now they would ring the bell, so gosh. there was a lot of order. And that's the interesting thing. People might think, oh my gosh, so many kids, such a huge family, what a mess. The discipline that came... I keep each other in line. Kept everything organized, yeah. and yes, there were moments that Had have it would break loose. And, you know, but the beautiful thing was 
because jiu-jitsu is not that aggressive sport, it's something that if you are introduced to it the right way, it's actually a vessel for you to explore yourself and to express yourself and to discover and, and to develop your curiosity and to find answers and to look for solutions and sometimes find some problems. <laughs> So it was something that was used as part of the education and development of everybody in the house. So which one of the brothers in the family or sisters, because like if say if Gen 2s are walking around and then you'll have some of your Gen 3s, your generational 3s walking around, is it, and you find one of the younger kids is really, really good, like a phenom. Right. <laughs> they could probably work the other one, the older ones up in, in, at any point in time. I mean, does he, does the bravado thing come out? Do, have, do, they, do they invite that? Like a grandchild. Like the older brother, younger brother. Yeah, way better cousin than, or something like that. Than somebody else. I'm not sure if that has happened yet. Naturally. <laughs> <laughs> but let's just say the behavior would change, especially at that time, if the parents were around or not. You know, like my mom on her birthday, at the time they didn't have any TVs in the house. On her birthday, my grandfather and my grandmother came to the U.S. and they brought back a mini black and white TV just for her as a birthday. And she said, like, when I got that gift, I knew it was going to be trouble whenever they weren't around. And everybody would respect her. The minute my grandfather left the house, they would come for her and she would try to hold in there, pulling her hair and she's <laughs> hiding behind the couch. And the minute they walk through the door, everything is fine. Sure. So who knows what, what went by. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So can everyone in the family fight? Was yes. So jujitsu was mandatory without us even knowing it was mandatory because of the way it was introduced. Sure to everybody in the family, women, men, you know, girls, boys. The men were incentivized to continue the legacy and take it to professional fighting at sure. the time. Women would be trained to do all the self-defense aspects so they could navigate the world. And the interesting thing that's was, right. it was it's, it's really kind of an unwritten rule in the family. We have that too. That's, that's amazing y'all do that. Everything has its, its you know, good and bad side. One of my cousins, Kira Gracie, she's one of the greatest champions in the family. She's eight times world champion. She has achieved you know, so many things. She's my teacher. She's the one that graduated me a couple of years ago. And she had to fight in order to fight. So there are the underlying battles also that not only because of my family, but as society was shifting, then the rules in within the family are also shifting. But there's always that period that you have to prove that this can be done and that oh. I can also contribute to this until they actually accept you. And it doesn't come from a dismissive behavior of like, no, you don't participate in this. It's more, we got you, you know? And it's interesting because sometimes you don't realize when you do these things with girls, it's, it's really normal still to this day that some fathers will say like, at least in our family, it was always like our uncles would come in and say, hey, honey, is somebody bothering you? You know, you can always tell daddy, you know, you can always tell uncle. I was going to ask that same you know? question. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that would be, I mean, what guy, when they find out who you are, would even attempt that? You, yeah. I mean, boyfriends, what's that even like? Yeah, break your heart. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Because you have a, there's Let's just, just say they came with the best intentions. I was about to say in a resume, <laughs> in a resume, hey, this is all I got, this is, this is everything. Yeah, that would be so tough. We joke about that with um, Marcus and his twin brother, Morgan. Like, our daughter, Addie, is the only girl. Out of the two of them. So when she comes of dating age, we joke like no one is going to want to come around between dad and uncle because... The good ones will. Yeah, <laughs> the good ones, hopefully. The good ones will no, rush it, for it. I mean, it's different for the... We have one girl. Yeah. But all the boys, they have to learn how to fight. They have to get their Eagle Scout. They got to get their black belt. They, I mean, military is kind of a big thing. That's in my family for all the way back. Generations. That's what we do in this family. Warrior class. But the interesting thing is... Girls and women needed 
as much, if not more, right? Because the reality is, yes, I had my whole life, you know, people in my family come in, is anybody bothering you, you know? But what about when they're not there? So what That's do you what I need do to hear from you. That? So you keep them going. Like, cause I put Adelaide in it in jujitsu since they were like walk basically just trying to get them used to it. I just want to get them familiar with it. But then when she goes, yeah, I don't feel like going. I'm dried. Hey, get you, you're going. Is that how you do it? I don't know. That's I, very I, difficult. So that's why I created this program for girls hey, and women only. Then. Yeah, please do. Crazy. Come on. I guarantee you, she's gonna be fighting with you because she's running late for class. Fine, she, she's you like know? that. We got a spot right over down the road if y'all looking to put up the schoolhouses, man. <laughs> But that was the main shift for me, right? Because my relationship with the sport has transformed throughout the years. Because at first, jiu-jitsu was play. We grew up literally with mats in the living room. And we thought it was normal until we started going to our friend's house and go like, oh, your living room looks so nice. You know? <laughs> they don't do you this? Know? They don't what's do the this. <laughs> you guys don't roll? Yeah, what's the like, matter? <laughs> we don't have TV, you know? Uh, but then... From all this like play, we literally, we learn how to crawl. We're playing, it's a comfortable place and you start standing and learning how to fall and all those principles are so important. You don't realize, oh, I am learning this thing. It's living in you. So it's, it's part of who you are as a human being. Then from there, when I was six, my dad started signing me up for competitions and I hated it, right? Because I didn't understand what being a winner is or being a champion and I when I stepped on the mats I had nothing like there was not a single cell in my body that wanted to beat that kid in order for me to be a winner that concept just I couldn't grasp that no concept. one ever talks about that like hey when you get in one you want to win don't you have that fit because some people lose their mind over it I mean, oh that's, my dad that's would what lose they go his mind. after yeah I mean, 100 percent. and then there's the I'm that way like I didn't have a, okay so this is for you maybe and your daughter because sometimes you don't realize the the negative impact they're creating on the other side because that's where the philosophy comes of let's honor their personality. I didn't understand why do I have to beat that person and see that kid crying and leaving the mat so I can be a winner when I don't even feel better about myself. And that's when the questioning now as a grown up, I understand the difference between winners and champions. But at the time I was like, well, I don't need this feeling. I don't need to be here. But yeah. one of the fights I was losing and I was totally fine with it because in my soul, I still thought, oh, jujitsu is a play and who cares? I tap out all the time at home. Like, what's the problem? And I started losing the fight and I was totally chilling, just defending myself. And I look at the bleachers and my dad is screaming from the top of his lungs. I thought his eyes were going to pop out of his face. You know, it was, like his eyes were red. He was like, you got 15 seconds. I was, the minute I saw him and this boy was mounted on me, and at the time, competition was boys and girls together. Women didn't even have space. In the, the grown-ups, like in the adults, it was all the belts together. Blue belts would fight black belts. Can you imagine this? You know, mm. this was like when I started competing. And when I saw my dad, like almost jumping on the mats to do what I wasn't <laughs> doing, I saw in his eyes, oh, being a winner is really important. So I bumped the kid out. He turned, I took his back, I choked him out, and I was so, I won the fight, but I was so nervous that before the referee could even raise my arm, I ran to the bathroom to throw up. Aww. So to me, it was like, this is not a, con and he kept signing me up for competitions. I hated it. He would drag me into the mats, you know, and then when I could finally choose, then I had a bad accident and I broke my coccyx, which is like your tailbone, the last bone of your spine and I had seizures and he would still like he would wait two weeks and sign me up again and like you're good yeah you're healed yeah you're good 
But, you know, that created a traumatic experience for me because I was being exposed to a side of the sport that I didn't connect with personally. Sure. It had to be explained to me. And I was watching somebody say this. It's like, hey, well, it's not a sport. This is self-defense. And, and in here, yeah. you're, you're defending yourself against an attacker. And then I was, oh, I was like, okay, well, it's not a, it's not a win or lose. It's, it is a win-lose. But it's not a first place, second place, third place. That, that, there's so many different ways you can explain that concept to somebody. And, and that goes with the student. I, I get that was the same way. I, I got a daughter now I'm trying to teach that to. I am a lot like you where I've never been competitive. I don't have one ounce of, of competitive in me. Like it just, the whole thought of like winning and beating someone. And I do, I'm not a fighter at all. I'm a a. Fight or flight, I'm the flight. <laughs> so to me, maybe we'll change that. I know, right? Well, I will shoot. <laughs> well, she someone. can shoot and throw knives okay, and action okay. all day I will long. Shoot okay, if I, I don't need know what to. she's talking about. She, that, there's people who don't like this. No, yeah, but, because I can see the fighter spirit. Yeah. But okay, she'll no. kill you quick, man. <laughs> I will I mean, kill I you if stunning, you're man. coming at my yeah. family. There's no problem doing that. <laughs> but um, but I, if it was just my choice, I would. That's not a path I would choose. And so, um. I get that. Like, and I can even picture myself as a little girl in your position. Like that is hard when your dad's just yelling at you, telling you, this is what you have to do to be good, you know, to win. And you, you associate that with like, okay, that's going to make my dad happy. That's, that is something we have to like talk about and kind of change. (laughs) But sometimes that works. Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> so my dad never yelled at us either. In the but stands. he was my coach, right? That's what I'm so he, about. he, he can, was like, she, she's not listening. She's yeah. not so you listening. Can, they can, you can separate the two. Yeah, as a, I mean, if you're at a jiu-jitsu tournament, the stadium is so loud, your coach is going to be yelling at you mm-hmm. the whole time, right? And their passion not- is going to come through when they see that you're losing. But it's interesting, Melanie, what you said, because something happens when daddy is in the room, when mm-hmm. dad is present. Yeah. And you are the one that is setting up that dynamic with your daughter. I have one student that every time she comes in, it's a mother-daughter class. So I developed this mother-daughter program where the moms and the daughters train together. So they go through this empowering journey at the same time. And it completely reprograms their whole relationship. It's so interesting. Even their physical connection. Because boys kind of grow up roughing around with the dad, but girls and moms are super sensitive. It's like, oh, oh my God, oh. Yeah. And when they start training, now that... I never thought about it. That's perfect. That's, that's a great way to do it. Because your mother actually sees the next version of herself and what she's capable of. Like an innocence part. Yeah. And the daughter looks at the mom as a white belt going, oh, I have this admiration because my mom is also open to learning something new. And the journey of growth and, and learning never ends. But the interesting thing is, one of my students, her parents are divorced. They have split custody. So... Every other week she comes with the mom and the mom does a class and every other week the dad brings and the dad watches. She's a completely different child when the mom is there than when the dad is there. Mm -hmm. And when the mom is there, she is in heaven. She's laughing the whole class. And we do something that is called the true circle where we start every class with a circle and I tell a story and they raise their hands and participate. And when the dad is there, she's frozen. She doesn't raise her hand. When I give her the word, she looks at the dad first to see if he's gonna prove her answer. Every move, she's tense the whole class because now it's not about her experience and her journey, it's about Am I good enough for dad? Am I being approved? Am I impressing him? Am I making him proud? Yeah. I hate to throw that kind of weight on my daughter. But that's something that, not you, that dads need to think about. I would imagine my yeah. daughter has some added weight just from who I am. 
A hundred percent. And then there's all that. <laughs> yes. You know what I'm talking? I couldn't imagine being who you were. Yeah. That that there's the weight you automatically inherit in life down here that usually crushes people. Mm-hmm. And then there's one you're born into. And I was listening to Mike Tyson the other day talking about his son. He goes, "My son wanted to be a fighter," and he started laughing. He's like, "You're not a fighter." He's like, "You're not a, you're not a fighter. You live in a mansion." He's like, "I," he's like, "I come from the streets." He's like, "I'm an animal." Mm-hmm. You don't want to do this. You don't want to be this. Some of us are born into it, and you're born into families that have to do that. And then you, I can understand where he's coming from. He's like, you're not a fighter, but you still have to train your family, all of them, to fight because as soon as they hear that name, someone's going to test you. But the interesting thing, even when you said, yes, it's important for us to defend ourselves from an attacker, but the most important thing about jiu-jitsu is that it builds an internal constitution that is so strong that you can deal with anything in life when everything sure. around you is succumbing. But my point with right? that is, is y'all have to. You kind of know that's yeah. coming for y'all. Mike Tyson's kid, you get that name on the back of your who's son? I, you know you know that has to happen. I know what happens to, happen to, my, I mean, it happens to my kid. So, I, I mean, with y'all, it's great that the family, like it, it's a wonderful thing to learn. We were talking about, I was like, man, y'all don't have, a, y'all can have a dynasty. Yeah. I mean, what you've created in your family in the past out of that, it, it, it's run into all of us. I was joking with my son. I was like, hey, uh, it's kind of like when you're a civilian and you get trained up in a martial arts, like carrying a weapon. Concealed. Just your name. Yeah. I was like, hey, man, what kind of weapon do I carry in here? I was like, well, I got, man, I got a Beretta, a Smith & West. Oh, I got some Gracie in here, too. <laughs> yeah. You want to see my Grace, I'll show it to you. Right? <laughs> and I mean, that's just the way it is, you're, what your family's done and what y'all continue to do. But the interesting thing is, so when I was 17, I moved to London by myself. And that was the first time of my life that I left the clan. And so many things happened on those years that I was there. And it was the first time that I realized what it meant to not have that protection Mm -hmm. and how shielded I was and how much that environment contributed to who I was and who, who I was becoming. But at the time, I mean, I was 17, you're a teenager. And I was looking forward to breaking away from, you know, the, that space and just finding out who I was because there is a time there comes a time where you ask yourself, who am I without them? Sure. Who am I? If nobody knows that I'm Gracie, do they treat me the same? Mm-hmm. Do they respect me the same? And did they? When you moved to London, no one knew so who you So that were. was the interesting thing. I wouldn't even tell people I was Gracie. And How freeing was that? It was an exploration. There you go. You know, to find out, can I hold my own? What, what does my presence in the world mean without an assumption coming from the other side? Mm-hmm. That's what you discover. And the sooner you discover that in life, the better. And some people rely on that their whole lives. If you can build your children to know who they are without other people making an assumption that they're your daughter or like they're related to whoever, it's who are you on your own? Because then everything else is just coming to contribute and to exacerbate mm-hmm. what you because if you don't have that internal understanding of yourself it doesn't matter who your family is it doesn't no. matter where you come from because yeah. when you're on your own that's not going to sustain you it's right? almost like that's how you get revealed it's like when you break free of that it's like okay yeah. all those years of molding you around that family and then because when you walk in you can tell if you know something mm-hmm. the way you a person carries himself the way you sit if you're how your posture is where you reply to somebody how you stare at them you can tell if something's got some work in it. And you can tell if it doesn't immediately, especially if you're trained. That's one of the gifts that comes with a martial art, is you can automatically tell somebody who has discipline who doesn't, just by the way they carry themselves. And going into that place, when you're armed with that, I tell my kids, it's like, if I give you all the gifts in the world and I don't give you discipline, you'll lose everything. 
But if I give you discipline, you, I don't have to give you anything else. It's so interesting because we've, and it's almost like, it feels like a warm hug when you meet that person because you immediately have a trust of going, they're ready for anything. They're always mm -hmm. ready. I always felt like this with my family. That's and you, you, you emulate and you simulate their behavior because you're, that's why the environment for children is so important because I don't think about when was the time in my life that I started walking with good posture. I just saw everybody in my house walking around mm -hmm. with confidence and you're emulating that behavior. But then when you are in an environment that nobody else has that, that's when you go like, oh, this is important. That's this great. is really important to have, right? Yeah. And for that time in London, I didn't put on a gi for four years and I didn't step on the mats. That was the biggest revelation for me in the time that I was living there was that the greatest value of jujitsu is applied outside the mats because I have never used jujitsu so much in my life as I've used on those four years. And I couldn't be further from a gym. And it was, I would laugh at myself sometimes because I would think, wow, I'm trying so hard to move away from it, but now I understand what jujitsu really is. And it's mm -hmm. exactly what you said. It's me knowing how to stand up for myself. It's me having the courage to look at people in the eye and tell them what I need. I was living by myself, I was young, I was looking at apartments, renting apartments, looking for jobs, doing all these things and going through situations that I had no idea women went through in the world. That was the first time in my life that I went, wait a second, is this what women have to go through? From people following me home to the manager in my restaurant, blocking me on the, on the changing room, not letting me leave. And that's when I understood, oh, this is when jujitsu is so important. And that was the shift for me that made me realize every single girl and every single woman needs to learn this. They mm -hmm. need to learn how to carry themselves, how to make eye contact, how to use their voice, mm -hmm. how to speak assertively, and how to feel capable and confident within so they can deal with yeah. any scenario that sure. comes their way. I think it should be in every school. I think that, there should be, it should be a self-defense class in every school from grade school up till you get to out of high school. That's my life's mission. In my whole life business we plan don't have is, that. I'm not gonna stop until every single school in America has jujitsu as part of, part of their curriculum. They really should. I it's mean, there's no reason base. not setting to. Setting up your ground game before you go out and fly out to do anything else. You got to have your ground game, and that's jujitsu teaches you how to fall down. And the one thing humans do in life is we fall down, and every time you do that, you come up stronger. And if you do it that way, you come up with a little extra. And you don't hurt yourself on and the. And you way. don't. <laughs> can't believe how far it takes you and all the added stuff that we do in there it's actually set up for ages it's like at a young age yeah you're gonna do this the most dangerous thing we have is a black belt as soon as they put it on there they want to you know it's kind of beat on your chest here i am kind of deal and then it, as you age is rank i mean you just kind of it's with you for life it's like you said it's on the inside and i couldn't imagine eating out of the house it's nothing but confidence i try to we try to do that here i don't let anything through the gates if it has stress on it or anything like that so when your kids or in this area and all they're eating is positive attitude. This is how you walk. This is what you say when you do this. This is how you respond to that. Nothing else? Sure, look what it produces. And you, you know what's interesting about that self-confidence that is built especially for girls? They start understanding that they need to make decisions on their own timing. I feel like girls and women make a lot of decisions under pressure. Oh, you have to decide now. You have to do this thing now. I need an answer by so-and-so. Men they build the skills to set those boundaries a little better as they grow up. Women are not exposed to these tools. And you just start getting this internal space where you start going, no, I'm going to make the decision when it's ready. 
when I'm ready, when it's right for me. Mm -hmm. I'm going to operate in my own timing instead of on the timing that is being imposed. Because we make the worst decisions of our lives when we are under stress. Sure. Right. So the fact that you're able to build that internal space to realize I'm actually not in the best place to make a decision right now. And even just that awareness, the awareness of who you're, you are and how you're feeling versus what's happening outside. And ultimately, the, the greatest skill you can have is awareness mm -hmm. and knowing how you're going to respond, because every everything, every consequence we face comes out of maybe a lack of awareness in that moment. I didn't really pay attention what my impact was being in that conversation. I was escalating the scenario instead of de-escalating. When you're aware that what you're doing has an effect and an impact, you can start making better decisions to have a more positive impact than negative. And we have to constantly be fixing the mistakes and the problems that we created oh, because yeah. we made poor decisions, right? Well, if you know what your body can handle, then, then you know the situation. You know that your body can handle the situation. The first person to lose any fight, anything, is the first person to lose that breath. Oof. I mean, the, the black belt and everything with the, the elders in your family, the one thing, and it comes with age, too. It's like, hey, I'm not in a hurry. Like, you get in a hurry, I'm going to wear your ass, you know, that kind of thing. And the, if, even every scenario, of, if you haven't been trained to react like a child, you start breathing hard, you get upset, and you make bad decisions. It's that shallow breath, right? That, that shallow breath. breath. <sighs> and if you know what you're looking at, and you see some, like, if you're in a conversation anywhere, most people, like you said, when, you, when you're confident in what you want, you ask for it, it just, it, they'll do it. If you hesitate a second, then people, will, they'll find their opening. Then it's kind of, that's what humans do. Like, oh, you got a weakness? Let me find it. Right. And it's it's a hesitation. And it's also that breath. I mean, everyone, when we're sitting around somebody and if, if everything's going bad, and you got that one person just as cool as they can be. And they're like, this is what we're going to do. Right. It's like the, the, the more intense, the calmer they get. That, those, those people are great to have around. <laughs> I've noticed just in the last like 10 years, so many people have problems with anxiety and stick him in the jujitsu man you got that's but what that's it for. seems like people with anxiety it it there's a level of confidence that that they're lacking and that's that feeds into the anxiety i'm not saying that's all of it but if you have anxiety problems doing something like jujitsu that teaches you just to take a moment, to calm down, to to think about things, to breathe, and all of that, I feel like that would actually help people with anxiety. Um, mental wellness. Of, yeah. yeah, I mean, there is a direct correlation between anxiety, depression, mental illnesses, and a lack of control of your nervous system. Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing that jiu-jitsu does. Jiu-jitsu takes you through the whole spectrum of emotions. You are going to experience frustration on the mats. You are going to experience pride. Not and what ego. you think the way they're thinking, though. That, that, much worse. Much worse. <laughs> but when you get in there, you'll understand it. You're like, oh, oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Now I understand as opposed to just having an idea. Yeah. And you're going to deal with pressure, but you're also going to deal with joy and teamwork and community and support. And there are days that you're going to learn some techniques that feel natural to you and you're developing your game. Some days you're out of it. But what you're doing is you're connecting with your nervous system because when you're exposed to those emotions, you have to go through them. You can't just quit, right? I'm frustrated in this moment, but I can't just say, oh, I'm going home in the middle of the class. Yeah. You're going to stay until the end. Yeah. And by the end, you're actually going to feel better about yourself because yeah. there is a program here that you're following that is meant to take you through these emotions and send you home in a to much better end. state. So take it to the end. Yeah.
London is that when you realize that you basically what you're doing now that you want to actually teach women and children is or is that yes that was the moment in my life that I realized I should start using the Gracie name again <laughs> it's yours <laughs> right yeah, use, but, use um, it. jokes aside it was the moment that I realized that I had a really important role in continuing the family legacy because until then okay I started you know playing the at home and then it turned into competition. I didn't love it. I abandoned it for a few years. And in this process of discovery, I realized there's nothing in my life more important than me using this and passing it along. Yeah. And it, I'm doing a disservice to my family and to society and to my existence in this planet if I don't take this forward. Because now I fully understand in every single cell of my body the importance and the applications of these principles. And most of them are not applied on the mats in a competition, in a jiu-jitsu competition. They are used every day. Mm -hmm. And when I understood how pivotal it was for me and how I would 100% be a complete different woman sitting here with you today if I didn't know jiu-jitsu. Mm -hmm. I would have been abused, I would have suffered traumas, and I would have been now in a process of healing instead of being in a process of sharing and empowering others. And it's kind of simultaneous, like we're always healing from something and improving and getting better, but luckily I didn't suffer any traumas that most of the students that walk through my door have. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of me starting to understand why are women being a little neglected when it comes to these principles, these skills? Why is the focus solely on men? And when you walk into the majority of jiu-jitsu schools, 99% of practitioners are men. Mm -hmm. Women are the ones that quit the most. And it's not because what's being offered is not what they need. Is the environment sometimes is, is not ideal for them and the methodology is not tailored for them example there is this move in jiu-jitsu called the guard where you are on the bottom and somebody is on top of you in between your legs blocking your hips right you don't know that woman's history and like you said the woman walks through the door she already went through a oh, yeah. battle inside to even make it to jiu-jitsu school and go oh i would like to learn this you don't know their history if they came from a toxic relationship from an abusive relationship if they if something happened in college and their first class you you put a random guy in between her legs in her guard yeah. and he's like sweep him and yeah. there's nothing wrong know. with separating women and men to train like that there's there's yeah. nothing wrong people who complain that oh you gotta have no wait this is the reason why for that very reason or capacitating instructors better you know i i have no problem with women training with men i trained with men my whole life i just realized i there's needed a time to time and place for that Potentially, yes. And also, there are not enough women teaching, right? And women need more female representatives on the mat. So the minute they walk through the door, they see somebody who they recognize and they feel immediately comfortable sure. with. And that speaks their language. You know, there are a lot of things that you guys don't have to think about that we actually have to go through all the time. And so that was the beginning of me understanding, okay, how am I using jiu-jitsu? I'm using verbal jiu-jitsu the most. So I started adding those things in the methodology and using a lot of psychology and body language exercises, you know, that help us build that confidence that maybe they would be shy doing that in front of somebody else. So we, we do a lot of posture of the champion, which is leading life with your heart, right? It's, it's pulling that string up and 
being open to opportunities, that's what changes your life. It's not, oh, I'm going to set boundaries and tell people that I'm uncomfortable with what they're saying and, and be respected. Yes, that's a consequence from training. The, the yeah. physical skills you learn are a consequence from training. What it's really doing is allowing you to lead life with your heart. I, I'm always open for challenge and opportunities. Whenever this opportunity came, I'm living in the posture of the champion. Okay, let's do this. Yeah, you know? so how, how did that show up? <laughs> I'm curious, how did it ever show up? That's in your bucket list, right? <laughs> so my bro, okay, so my brother and I had these bets when we turned, one was when we turned 40 years old. Okay. And then another one's when we turned 50. And whoever loses the bet, this one is if I lose, we have to climb Everest. So I was just curious as to, and it's a big joke. Yeah, I know, see? I've done almost everything else. That one. They're almost 50. Yeah, so. so oh, it's yeah. coming. It's coming up, it's yeah, coming. it's coming up. How did you? Did you want to do that or did someone call you and be like, so hey. So interestingly, that was never on my bucket list. I, I just wasn't raised Same around here, mountaineers. I wasn't yeah. prepared for it. And, and to be honest, like I always thought it was so far. I always thought I'm going to have to train for a decade for this. I ain't got that time, you know. Mm -hmm. But I have a vast network of peak performance coaches and athletes in L.A. where I live. And I met some endurance athletes and the opportunity came and just like everything in my life is like last minute. It's like, do you want to do this? You know, and I was first offered to climb this mountain called Lobuche Last East. minute. That's kind of like dinner. Like last minute, we, <laughs> Not last minute ever. We go to the movies or something like yeah. that. <laughs> just to be clear on my end of the definition. Of last so, minute. Yeah, so go ahead. I mean, I've been training my whole life for it. You just did it in seven yeah. weeks. But that's curious. an interesting thing. So I was offered to climb Le Boucher, which is a 6,119 meters. It's a mountain where you stay on Everest Base Camp, and then you climb this first mountain. And then they were like, next year you can come and climb Everest. So you got to qualify. Pretty much, right? Okay. They're like, you know, let's, let's see how you respond in altitude. You don't have experience in this and that. But the most important thing for me was I immediately reached out to a top coach who had been on your podcast, Mike McCastle. Right. Nice. And I saw a lot of athletes. So obviously he's legit. He got it done. He got you up. Okay. Yes. Hey, he he prepared out. me. He got prepared checked me. Out. He's your guy. <laughs> he's if my you guy. Do All this. right, good. Yeah. Get his file. Put, yeah. a, put a star on the paper. Yes. Um, good job, Mikey. Mike McCastle, who was my conditioning coach for Everest, and Lakpadendi Sherpa, who was my guide on this trip, were pivotal to my success in the mountain. And that was the biggest thing, right? Like, the mindsets behind jiu-jitsu put me so far ahead because I knew that once I commit to something, I have to prepare okay. and I have to be coached. So that's where the white belt mentality came into place is we have to be brutally honest with ourselves at where we are standing in life. And it's the lack of honesty with ourselves that also puts us in jeopardy and danger. So I knew I have no experience with mountaineering. And when even Lobouche came up, I reached out to Mike McCastle and I didn't even know if he was going to take me in because he's preparing, you know, athletes to break world records on K2 and climb Mount Everest and do these crazy expeditions across Antarctica. So I thought I'm such a beginner. He might, you know, pass. But he said, yes, I'll train you. And we had a call at 9 p.m. At 7 a.m., I had the training program for the week on my email, and I started. The interesting thing was in my journal throughout the whole camp, because I had six and a half weeks to prepare, I would write on my journal, I'm going to be on Everest base camp. That's not me climbing a smaller summit. And like I would have all these thoughts in my head, and I would put them on paper. And I was having this internal conflict of, yes, I've never done mountaineering, but I'm, I'm, I always aim high. And on two days before, I had an altitude training camp with Mike McCastle, which was week four of our training. I, I said, I have a really important question to ask me, and I need you to be honest with me. 
and he got all serious and I think I was very serious at the time. And I said, do you think that if I attempt to climb Mount Everest, I'm gonna die? And he said, Cecilina, I've actually been training you forever since day one. And at that moment, I was like, I'm climbing Mount Everest then because if this guy has done my evaluation and he thinks I'm ready for it and my heart is telling me I'm ready for it, then I have the body and the soul connected and I'm gonna do this thing. And then I didn't sleep the whole night. I was like, oh my God, I'm climbing Mount Everest. Am I crazy? And I just didn't want to die. And the thing with Everest is- There's nothing wrong with that feeling. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> right? It's a package deal. I still have territory. a lot of work to do on yeah, this yeah, yeah. I get, I've been there, I've been there. <laughs> I didn't feel like it was time to die, you know? I'm yeah, and that's the thing, I love life. So I'm not a reckless person that, you know, just signs up for crazy things and goes like, oh, whatever. Everything I do is planned and is thought of mm -hmm. and is evaluated. And I'm honest with myself on what are my real possibilities. And part of that is being surrounded by people that want your best. And I was coached my whole life. I had teachers and masters my whole life. And I know the importance of having people on your team like this. So it became like this crazy run of learning about gear and my preparation was 100% dedicated to being as self-sustainable in the mountain as I could possibly be. So apart from the physical training that I did with Mike McCaslin, and the mental training that he does also, he will get you doing planks on ice, freezing your extremities, then going straight into wall sits with plates of weights on your on your um, legs and he will give you a bunch of ropes and you have to tie those ropes with frozen hands and now feet in the ice. So he's constantly challenging your mind. Can you respond when you can't feel your fingers after nine hours of training nonstop? And you know, it was really interesting to go through that process because I would look at him and I was like, what are you even doing? And he was like, I'm trying to simulate what the worst day in the mountain could look like for you. So that training was pivotal for me to understanding what all the variables could potentially be, but nothing will ever compare to when you're there. Yeah. And the thing about it was two things. One, he got my mindset to the point where, Cecilina, when you reach the summit, I want you to know that's only half of the climb because a lot of people down. don't know this, but 90% of deaths happen on the descent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the second thing was, I want you to learn everything you can. I want you to learn how to change your own oxygen bottle. I want you to learn how to tie all the knots if you lose your equipment, if you lose your rappel device, if you lose your anything. If an avalanche takes down your Sherpa and doesn't take you, I want you to be able to get yourself safely back into base camp. So luckily I didn't need to use any of this, but I was practicing for hours. And while everyone was hanging out at Everest Base Camp in like the coffee dome and waiting for the weather window and just getting to know each other, I was in my tent putting my crampons and taking my crampons off, putting my boots, putting my harness on, tying everything, closing my eyes, doing all the knots, learning like the, the most important ones. If I need to traverse the mountain, I lose my equipment. If I need to repel myself. If, so all those things slowly build your confidence when you go, where you go, I'm gonna do this. And then the, the final part for me when I started climbing was I didn't realize how dangerous it would be. And this season was extremely heavy because on the first day of the opening season, the fixing team who are the Sherpas that are selected to set the ropes all the way to the summit so that everyone can follow and attempt to summit. The three Sherpas that had been, you know, setting lines for 25 years, they died in the Kumbu Icefall, which is the first part of the climb between Everest Base Camp and Camp One, also one of the most dangerous parts. So we opened the season with the fixing team dying in a horrific accident, them having to come up with another team to fix the lines, and the energy being super heavy. 
Yeah, it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. And this turned out to be the deadliest season on Everest history. So there was a lot going on in the mountain. And that's when I started realizing, oh, Cecilina, you're so silly. You thought you needed all these mountaineering skills. Yes, they're needed, but what's actually going to take you to the top are the mindsets that you've created throughout your journey in jiu-jitsu. Because there were several people in my expedition that had 20 years of climbing experience that were on their third Everest attempt that they didn't make it to the summit. Sure. And I did. What's the difference? Right? And it was that internal constitution that we talked about where can you make decisions under stress? Can you assess your internal operating system and what's happening around you? How do you respond to an avalanche? There were so many things that happened that before I started climbing, when I realized how dangerous it was, I made a commitment to myself. And I say that I signed this invisible agreement that while I was breathing, if I could think and if my body could move, I would keep moving forward. And I would, I would not let myself go back because of fear, because of fear of death. If I'm able to make decisions, if I'm consciously thinking, because that happens, a lot of people have altitude mountain sickness and they start hallucinating the mountain. But if I'm conscious, if I can breathe, and if I can take another step, I'm moving forward. So I made a decision that if I died, I died. You know, but if I can move, I'm going to push forward. And a lot of people didn't because they didn't have the, the right mindset. What was the hardest it. part of the climb? There were some moments. One of where, the hard. Where, where's the one where you were like, hey, what, what the hell was I thinking? But you can't get out of there. So the interesting thing about that invisible contract that I made with myself was when I got caught in an avalanche in the Kumbu Icefall, it was interesting to see that when the avalanche passed... I couldn't feel my legs. Like the, the ground beneath me felt like it didn't exist anymore. It felt like I lost my foundation. Yeah. And when I finally, my, my Sherpa came, like remove some of you know, the, the snow. And he was like, we gotta keep going. And I tried to stand up and I stood up and it was like, everything was feeling weird. All these thoughts are rushing through your mind. And all the thoughts that I was thinking was, what am I doing here? Am I crazy? You know, why am I doing this? My why this and that. But the one question that I did not ask myself was, should I go back to Everest Base Camp? Yeah, yeah. Because I was still close enough. But that never crossed my mind because I had made a decision back then. So that was a really difficult moment. Another part that was really hard was when I saw dead bodies in the mountain for the first time. So between Camp 3 and Camp 4, when you start getting really high in the mountain, you're almost in the death zone, which is when you reach 8,000 meters, there's not enough oxygen to sustain life. And your body is dying, whether you're breathing with oxygen yeah. or you're attempting to climb without it. It's an interesting thing because your physiological nature, every cell in your body is telling you, we are not supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> this is uh, not yeah, for yeah, us. Yeah. There are some you know? bells and whistles in that thing that you've yeah. never heard before. Yeah, your body. And when like, they whoa, start going whoa. off, you're like, "What? The, what is that?" There is a voice. Yeah. You know it, like you know it you internally. Know, yeah, that's funny. You're not supposed to be there. The yeah. bodies don't decompose. Mm -hmm. You know, right, like right, there's right. no life. There's literally no life in there. So you, even though you're trying not to think, "What am I doing here?" Your body, everything in your in your system is telling you, like this this feels different. You know, but when 
because there were so many deaths this year, when I started seeing bodies that it weren't, they weren't the famous bodies in the mountain, they were fresh bodies. They were bodies that when I was climbing and I was looking up, I was like, oh, this person is resting. They're taking a break, you know? When you approach, it was like, oh, this body is like 24 hours. And I, I had never been through that, right? So uh, when you say, what was the hardest part of the climb? Like, there were hard parts of the climb, and then there were hard parts post-climb yeah, yeah, that okay. nobody told me about, and right. I had no idea. Like, the void. There's the middle stuff. You can't anticipate. Yeah. Is there someone that goes and gets the bodies and recovers them, or are they just... They leave them, right? They leave them Unfortunately, on they don't, because the body gets so heavy because it freezes and it doesn't decompose. So you like that body becomes impossible to bring down. And here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. Everybody's struggling up there. Everybody's on their limit. And everybody has actually passed their limit. So the thing is that you're so past your limit that the line is so thin between am I gonna make it or not that it's not like we have a lot of room saying, I'm full of yeah, energy, about, I'm, I'm going to rescue dying. this person. We're talking about, that, that changes everything. When the line isn't, I'm uncomfortable, I'm cold, it's like, hey, this is death or not death. It I changes everything. I just don't know everything. if there's like a team that is just for recovery. There isn't. First of all, it's super expensive. Yeah. Right? Like to, because these people need to be on, on bottled oxygen as well. And then it's dangerous for the people who are attempting the rescue. And rescues do exist mm -hmm. sometimes. Sometimes they are able to bring bodies down, but most of the times they aren't. You kind of know that going up, right? That's part of the deal. Yeah. But seeing it is a lot different because you go, oh, this not only could be me, it can be me. Oh, it made it real. Because I haven't made it yet, and I still yeah. have to come back down. It makes it real. It makes it very real. When the instructors are telling you, it's kind of like war. Jiu-jitsu. It's like with anything else. Yep. Like, I hope I tell you about it all day long. Until it's you jump terrifying. into that sucker and actually oh my gosh. get a, a visual commitment on it. It changes. Yep. It, it, it's, it's almost like that stamp. It's like, it's in there, sure. But I'm going to need something to make you feel it. And that's what that hammer is. Yeah, knowing about it and living it are two, two very different, different yeah, things. Different thing, yeah. So yeah. when you did summit, what was what did you do? Did you do a, a jujitsu move? Or <laughs> did you? Gracie, I did. Is there, is there, is there is like a belt up there? I mean, what are we talking about? That's a big deal. Um, yeah. I did the posture of the champion, which is you know right. how you look when you're on top of the podium. And I was like, I'm on top of the world. That's the top it's of the only podium. Fair. That's the, the top. top of, yeah. That's the top. And it's interesting because I was by myself on the summit for 40 minutes, me and my Sherpa, and we planned really well because as we started climbing together, you get to know each other. And he realized that timing would be of essence in our climb to avoid potential yeah. lines or to prevent yourself from getting frostbites. All these things happen when you're either stuck behind somebody or a storm hits and you are not prepared. But part of that was knowing when to leave. So when we were at Camp 4 at our summit push, everybody left at 8 p.m. And he said, let's wait. So I actually slept until 9.40, and then I started getting ready. And we left at 10.40 p.m. So I gave everybody else two hours and 40 minutes of head start. So when I arrived at the summit at 9.35 a.m., people were coming back. And there was nobody out there anymore. It was a difficult day also to summit. There wasn't a lot of people that summited on that day. We got a super heavy storm. We were right on a ridge and out of the blue, that's the thing, like these winds start blowing. It's like 70 kilometers per hour. And I was like, right on the ridge. 
fridge? Yeah, Could you okay. wait 10 minutes? <laughs> you know, and you can't run. You can't go like, oh, I'm, I'm going to quickly get there. Like you just, you duck and you hold on for your life, you know. And, and there's so, there was one moment when I got to the Hillary step that that was the one moment in my life that I feel like I kind of lost it. You know, because everything else was building up, but I felt like I was managing the stress and the fear pretty well. But when I got to Hillary's step, I am super scared of heights. <laughs> so when I got there and we started climbing, then you're looking at this huge cliff on both ends and you're like, oh my gosh, I literally, I cannot misstep here. And it's when you're the most exhausted. You've been climbing for almost 12 hours, nonstop, not drinking water. You're dehydrated, you're hungry, all these things. And there was one part that you had to sort of jump. And I jumped and my crampon, because it's just rocks, my crampon slipped. Mm. And I held onto the, the rope, but I was kind of inclined. I looked down and for one second, I felt like in my heart, I was like, I just died. Oh like, I'm, I'm gone, right? And then there's that second after that was like, oh, I'm still alive, thank God. Like, I'm still here, you know? False alarm. False alarm. <laughs> but that was the one moment I was like, I think it, I just freaked out. I was like, I just started screaming to my shirt, but I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then he held on to me and he, he grabbed my hands. I remember he was like, strong mind. And when he said that, it was almost like it was my grandfather saying something, you know? And I was like, I immediately went back into myself and was like, let's do this. Yeah. And I just turned it on. Why are you yelling? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's what's snapped me out. <laughs> no, I know. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, okay, I'm That's doing this no exists. matter what. And I needed that like final push of anger. But so when I got to the summit, I was like, wow. I still had that mindset. I didn't relax for a second because I knew this is only halfway through. Mm -hmm. Don't relax. Like stay, keep your link, right? But for a moment, it's, it's hard to put into words. And I hope everyone gets to experience something in their lives that they have a hard time describing. Has anybody else in your family done this? No, they have not. I'd just like to call your brothers out on that. Oh, I've been calling all of them out. Trust me. <laughs> I mean, top of the world. Funny thing Who's was, up there? Yeah. Funny thing How was, about I, you, boys? <laughs> and some of them, when I came back, they were like, oh. I think I want to do this. Uh, they were all thinking, I was like, I bet, like, name the price. I'll put that money down on the table that you can't make it to the summit. Hey, you already got it. I you mean, Hoist got the <laughs> yeah. one deal. When it he stepped into that gauntlet, he, he took that and you took the other one. Top of the world. And in the arena. Yeah. I mean, y'all are clamping it down. But that was proof to me. I'm well, talking a lot of smack to you, brother. By the way. Just, yeah. just, we don't need a fight. <laughs> I'm too old to fight. That's why I'm talking smack. Well, they are tracking my location. I know. So they might show up. But That's good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I had to get them here somehow. But the interesting thing was really this climb on Everest taught me three really important things. And the first one was that the principles of jiu-jitsu are most useful outside the mats. My ability to make decisions under pressure, my understanding to keep my link, to keep my internal composure, to listen to myself regardless of anybody else, to keep distance from the naysayers. So many people at base camp were like, oh, you might make it to camp too. And they thought they were supporting. Some people were like, you have no business being here. I've been a mountaineer for 22 years. You know, Some people were angry that I was there. But when you know you've put in the work, they don't know my journey. They don't know my story. If you ask me, do you recommend people to climb Mount Everest as their first mountain on their first attempt? Absolutely not. I was built different in a way where I had a set of mindsets 
that it's really hard to find. Like I knew what my constitution was it, and I was honest with myself. It's the white belt mentality. I was fully transparent and I prepared for it to the best of my abilities, right? He, that's the second time I heard you say that and I, I'd like to compliment you on that because if you don't know what that is, a lot of times we start at the white belt and we try to make it to the black belt. But once you get to that black belt, you try to make it back to the white one. Mm-hmm. I was taught that way too. It's like open mind, anything and everything that you do. It's very powerful. Yeah. I, I try to remind myself that I'm a white belt constantly. And when I feel like, oh, I think I graduated to blue on this thing, then what else am I a white belt on? Because building that foundation is the most important thing, yeah. right? Jiu-Jitsu has three main principles that I live by. The first one is foundation. And foundation in jiu-jitsu on the mats is everything. It's your base. It's knowing where to place your feet so you're effective with your movements. So you create that link where you can, you know, finally choose if you're going to close the distance, like we say, go all in or all out. So you can set the dynamic in that dance. And our foundation in life is everything. Is the foundation of your family. Is the foundation of your principles. And a lot of times we don't actually stop to think actively, what is my foundation? What am I lacking on my foundation? What is my habits? Your habits are your foundation, your eating habits, the the way you talk to yourself. And all of these things matter so much, you know? The second one is distance. You having the distance management of knowing in jujitsu is potentially controlling what the damage is gonna be and if there is gonna be any damage. Are you gonna close the distance and go all in so you can now finally apply leverage or are you gonna go all out? And in life, these are our relationships. We constantly let people in our inner circle that should never be there in the first place. And a lot of times we have things that are too far from us that we place them so far and we don't think we are capable of actually getting there. And you, only you hold the power of closing the distance and the things that matter to you. Mm -hmm. Do you think about those things? And to me, that was pivotal in my journey. And those are the ways that I apply jujitsu every day and that I'm reminding myself. The third one is connection. The only way to have leverage is by applying connection. You don't have leverage if two bodies are separated. And when you create that connection, in fighting is the way that a weaker opponent, which was the beautiful thing about jiu-jitsu, it showed that a weaker person could actually be advantageous against a stronger person, that you can use their body. It's like you're fused into each other. What's running their veins now, it's, it's running into yours because in order for them to move, they have to drag you. In order for them to get up, they have to lift you. So suddenly those two bodies became one and now you can use their constitution in your advantage. And it's the same thing in our lives. And even if you talk in a non-confrontational way, in a commercial way, you, you have a negotiation. Which leverage do you have? Most people try to muscle through things. Like I'm gonna impose my will here because I hold the power. But sure you are creating some damage in the people around you and that's gonna cost you in the long run. So Mm -hmm. are you able to actually use leverage and understand where you're coming from, where they're coming from, and use some technique in that that process? Yeah. Mind, body, and spirit trains all three. Very rarely do you run into a sport that does that. So when you were on the mountain and you had those naysayers at base camp or at different levels, when you were coming back down, were they proud of you or were they jealous? So I have one interesting story for you on that topic. There was one woman that she had been to Everest Space Camp 20 times. Oh, wow. She is an ice climbing instructor, extremely experienced climber, has climbed several peaks. And this year was the first year she attempted Everest. She was more than capable of doing that. She was the fastest one in the group. She would get, when, whenever we were leaving Everest Base Camp to Camp One, she would be the first one to get there. Camp One, and I don't know who she was competing with. 
maybe with herself or her dream of finally making it. When you leave Camp 4 and you start heading for your summit push, it's at night, so it's super dark. And the only thing you see is whatever your headlamp is illuminating. And the beautiful thing is when you start that climb, I started at 1040, so there were several climbers already up the mountain, and all you see in that pitch darkness are the stars in the sky and the little lights that look like stars, but they're the climbers because they're moving up. And they were my guides. Like I would keep looking at those lights going up, which were the climbers. And it kept motivating me to try and get to them. You know, like as long as they keep moving, I'm going to keep moving. And then right before dawn, after the storm I talked about, where the wind started blowing, it was, it was extremely difficult to go through that storm. It was right before dawn, which is the coldest time. And you're talking about minus 45 Celsius. Oh you know, it's really cold. I would not make it. I just would. I'm just letting you I know mean, that's. No. I'm not built. I was born in Louisiana. You have the right gear. You have the right. I'm from Brazil. It's Brazil. Are you telling me you want to make yeah. it? Excuse uh, me. My um, body is meant for I like mean, swampy humidity. What are you even doing up here, man? You're from Brazil. That was the question. You know what I'm talking about? That was like, the question. Um, you want to ask a question? Ask that one. But the interesting thing was, after that storm, it was still dark. And then you get up and you kind of find yourself again. Where am I? Where am I going? Okay, I saw these lights kept going up. I kept going my way. But right after the storm, this weird thing happened where one of the lights started coming in, in my direction. And I was like, this is weird. It's too soon for this light to be coming down. There's no way they made it to the summit yet. What happened? You have no idea who it is. I kept climbing and then I crossed this person right before dawn. It was still dark. but And then I see it's her. It's a super experienced woman from my team. And I look at her and I said, where are you going? And then she said three things to me. She said, it's too cold. It's too dangerous. It's not worth it. Mm. Which were the three opposite things from the deal that I made with myself. I'm thinking, I'm breathing, I'm moving, I'm going. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't that she had a huge headache. She couldn't think, I'm, I'm hallucinating. It wasn't that... I can't breathe, I don't feel well, I'm extremely ill, I need to go down. It was her mind self-sabotaging her 300 meters from the summit. And we do this all the time. And that is the difference between having a strong mindset and having systems in place that built you to achieve success and not having the right mindset mm -hmm. to get to where you thought initially you wanted to go. Because she was healthy, she was capable to keep moving, but she told herself it's not worth it. This is you self-sabotaging yourself when you almost make it. Mm -hmm. And when I got to that point, I was like, wow. I did everything I could to convince her, but also I, I got to keep moving, mm -hmm. right? And to your point, when I came back to base camp the next day, her tent was, was right next to mine. And when I finally made it down, after going through two avalanches, one crevasse opened right underneath my feet. I had food poisoning in the Kumbo Icefall from a, an old energy gel. Like I went through hell on this climb. Like people have no idea. And when I finally made it back and I was safe and sound and I had summit and it was my first mountain from somebody who didn't even know what a carabiner was when I was going through the gear list, you know, mm -hmm. with my expedition, I was like, what is a carabiner? And they were like, oh my God. <laughs> You're gonna be fine. <laughs> You're gonna make it. <laughs> You're gonna be great. It's gonna be good. You know There's what I mean? There's no. mm -mm. 
<laughs> you know what? When you go back to Kimmy, you know what? You're right. It was too Make cold sure you up there. Us. It was cold as shit up there, and uh, and it was scary, and it was it was everything you said. Those yeah. three things. But those carabiners, I brought enough. Yeah. But yeah. Guess what? <laughs> I have just as many as I needed. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I know what in the hell they are now. <laughs> uh, but when I got back to base camp. I immediately called my family because I didn't tell anybody I was climbing Mount Everest. My parents didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> she, she called from the mountain telling me you just summoned the mountain? Yes. <laughs> hey, I'm on top. Did they even believe you? <laughs> no, hey, I'm, I'm back down safely. <laughs> oh, my God. So, and um, I called my That's coach. That's great, I by the way. <laughs> That's a great one. I, I wouldn't savage. have anticipated that you were going to say that, but yeah, go, all right, go ahead. <laughs> can talk about that if you want but so something would uh, happen they'd be like what do you mean she died on she died where in california she's from brazil that was an avalanche in los angeles yeah what do you mean there was an avalanche in los angeles she lives by the beach oh my god all right go ahead um i i called a key few people and it was like 11 p.m you know almost midnight she sends me a message saying hey i'm trying to sleep here do you mind leaving your phone calls for tomorrow? What? Yeah. It was crazy. She was saying that I was, because she was in the tent right next to mine. She, and I was like, I, I didn't even respond. But I'm like, I just survived the deadliest season ever. I just summited Mount Everest. Yeah. And by the way, nobody's leaping here anyways. Because, you know, what are you talking about? Our helicopter leaves at 7 a.m. Sleep when you get to the Marriott. Oh I'm my calling my family gosh. to tell them I'm alive. It's 8 a.m. in Get Brazil. your ass on the mat. You know, yeah, we're going right now. <laughs> but oh to your point, gosh. it's it's the same mindset, right? And that's why my grandfather, at that time, as a difficult kid, when he got exposed to jiu-jitsu, he realized society needs this. Yeah. Because when you build something for yourself that you're proud of, when you have self-confidence, when you have the courage to go after your dreams, you don't envy the people that do the same. You actually want more people to do that because right. they're going to yeah. motivate you. I wanted those lights in the mountain to keep going oh, yeah. because if they all turn back down, I would question myself. Yeah. But, you know, the moments that you get really tired and they almost think about giving up, you look up and you're like, they're still going, therefore I can too. And this is possible. And that's, that's why it's beautiful that we meet humans is because I hear about your story and I hear about your story and maybe the things that I thought I would never be able to do, now you showed me it's possible and my, I might get further than you. All the Olympic records show that when the first yeah. person is able to run the but, first yeah. mile, faster than four minutes, then everybody's doing Everybody that. Did. And like, this is something that only humans can do. And when you have that, you help other people rise. You help other people succeed. Insecure people are the ones that are tearing each other down. Yeah. They are trying to, you know, sabotage others because you're sabotaging yourself. How can you give something to someone that you don't have it for yourself? You can't. And that's why the more we work on ourselves, the more we're able to spread it around. It's, it's the seeds, like the seeds that my grandfather planted, they continue to this day. The seeds that started with the mango trees and the fights of him trying to get the kids out, now he's the one teaching the kids that were like him to share the tree yeah. and that maybe you might be able to get the mangoes they're a little bit higher and you might be able to you know bring mangoes to kids that don't even have the ability to climb trees like that's what jujitsu is and is moments like this where you realize like wow you know we are different different in a way where i almost saw her as when she was a kid because maybe she was never given the tools to make it mm -hmm. you know and 
who knows if she will ever accomplish her dream, which was to climb Mount Everest, but it's not even about that. It's like, will you be able to face yourself in the mirror and be so transparent with yourself of going, why am I upset that she's celebrating her summit? It's because of this pain that I have inside. Because then when you realize it's always about us, you stop hurting and damaging people around you and you start rebuilding yourself. And by doing that, you will get people that will actually come on board yeah. and create that clan, that dynasty that maybe you weren't born into it, but you can build that throughout your life. Absolutely. Well, it goes back to the competition thing. Remember when some of us like to compete, but it's not, hey, I don't want to beat that person. That makes great teammates. Like I had that too. It makes for a good job in the teams. Like I didn't want you to lose. I want you to get ass up there and then... You see which one she was. She had to be the champion. She's not the first place, and they just kind of they they they're upset at everybody. I mean, it makes I bet it makes for a good instructor too. Well, she wanted to be a winner. Yes, I'm talking and about. She will never be a champion, right? And that to me was the biggest difference. And even when I go back into why did I have that feeling on the mats at that time that I didn't want to beat that kid is just in my head I couldn't understand why can't we both be champions? Yeah. Why in order for me to win they have to lose? And I think that's the difference. Winners, they are defined by the medal and the trophies that they are receiving at that time. At the moment. Champions are still champions even when they lose. Nobody goes, oh, Serena Williams lost that match. She's a loser. No, right. she's a champion. Still she's not a winner yeah, still, at still this best. specific mm -hmm. right. you know, comp tournament, but she's a champion. She will forever be. And, and champions have that ability of winning and helping everybody else around them win as well. You know, one interesting thing was I met this girl and she became my tent mate on Everest. We were climbing together, sort of like on this on similar schedule. And the last three mountains she attempted to climb, she turned back before the summit. And they were all 8,000 meter mountains. And then her dad passed away, and she had been climbing since she was six years old because her dad was a climber. And then she decided to climb Mount Everest to honor him in his homage. And when she was doing super well, we got to camp one, she was my tent mate, and when we started the summit push after the first rotation to acclimatize in the mountain, she started breaking down mentally. On camp one, she started saying, I think I'm gonna go back down tomorrow. And I said, why, you know? So I did a prayer every day in the mountain. Before every climb, I asked for permission from the mountain to keep going, and I literally felt like, despite all you know, the huge challenges I was facing in terms of environment, the storms inside from food poisoning and the, the storms outside, I felt like I had this bubble, like this layer of protection that was allowing me to move forward. And it was almost like every day before my climb, I would ask for permission for the mountain to open its portal for me. You know, the mountain had already done what I was attempting to do. And that was a big re revelation for me to even apply the connection purpose, like principle from jujitsu, because I was trying to climb the mountain and trying to find the angles and trying to figure it out. And I realized like, I have to connect with the mountain. Like I have to become one in this journey. Otherwise I'm going to make it really hard on myself and I might not even make it. And that night I decided to, for some reason, do my prayer out loud. And I just told her, I don't know what your beliefs are, but just open your heart for whatever comes for you intuitively. But I'm going to say out loud what it's living in my heart. So I held her hand and I started doing my prayer and she was crying throughout the whole mm. prayer. She was bawling her eyes out, you know, and it was almost like all of that fear was coming out of her heart. It was like an outlet, right, for her. And 
the next day I told her, we are gonna climb together from now on. And she had had an accident on her, on her last expedition and she couldn't really move one arm. So she kept telling herself that she wasn't capable because her body wasn't fully functioning. And then we kept on going together. When we got to camp three, we woke up in the morning and that was you know, the final push. It was camp three to camp four, rest a few hours and go for summit push. She made the decision to go back down. Mm. And that's when we talk about planting the seeds and then waiting for it to germinate on other people without you having to control how they receive that. In the morning, I tried to talk to her, let's keep going, and she made the decision. She's like, I can move my arm, I'm gonna go back down. And she actually radioed our expedition at base camp and she said, I'm gonna return. And I had a private conversation with her that I'll, I'll keep to ourselves, but I told her some things and I turned and I had to leave, right? So I started climbing up. And the climb from camp three to camp four means you're climbing this very steep, is one of the steepest parts of the climb, and then you're traversing into what they call the yellow band, which is this, this massive you know, rock that you have to climb and, and you have to do this traverse on the mountain. And right when I got to the top, before I went to traverse, her name was Kirsten, when I was about to traverse, my Sherpa, because he saw how upset I was that she wasn't going to come and she could do it. Like mm -hmm. she, she had the heart of a champion. She just had to believe in herself. And I told her before I left, I believe in you even though you don't believe in yourself. If you want to do this, you're going to find me there and I'm going to be waiting for you. And I left and I didn't know if she was going to change her mind or not. But before I went on the traverse, my Sherpa started screaming, look, Sass, Carson decided to come. And I looked down and she was like climbing up and we summited, I have goosebumps. Oh we summited gosh. on the same day. Jump. It was incredible, awesome. it was incredible. So it's the power of like sometimes just the way we live our lives, even if we think it's not having any impact, it's like, just go, like your example, you might be inspiring people, you don't even realize how much you're doing for them. Oh you yeah, know? that's why you were there. It yeah. went for you to climb that thing. Yeah. Just for she to, so well, she could. It's because you become a great teacher from yeah. it. Like a teacher has blossomed in you yeah. from this. But it's That's almost saying, like right? what's what's the joy of winning alone? You know, it's like yeah, when the once the uh, when the um, teacher's ready, the student will appear. Well, and to climb a mountain, you, uh, every day I would go into class to train the man who taught me. He had this sign right above it when, when you walk in to stare at it. it. Says to climb a mountain, you have to start at the bottom, and it's one foot over the other. So I mean. So, I come from a very close family as well. If I were to do that and call them on my way back and say, hey, I made it, I don't know if they would be happy or super pissed. What was your family's response? I feel like it's one of those phone calls you can't be prepared to have an emotion <laughs> yeah. for. What, there'd, be two things, there'd be a lot of things slamming in there at one time. What did your family say? The, the difficult thing was... I was on such a short window to prepare for this. I had to be very efficient on where I was gonna direct my energy and how much interference I was gonna allow in my life on those seven weeks. I come from a very protective family. Mind if I ask you that? Because it was <laughs> burning a hole in my head. Which ones really watch out for you? Like, which one of the brothers in the family? In the like, family? Yeah, the ones that are real, real protect. Because there's a couple of brothers I'd imagine that will always watch out for the sisters. Yes. So... It's like, who would you have to answer to if you got hurt? You're going to get everything? me in such big trouble right now. To you name just, if you don't want to say it, I just know that they're there, <laughs> right? There's a few... Right. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, the, the ones I speak more often, like on a daily, weekly basis, Hoist is really close to me. That's we do I a lot of self-defense training and... 
and crazy adventures and the white belt mentality, I see it in him all the time. I took him, you know, like foiling and doing things that he never tried. I remember I took the, him to do e-foiling and he was falling on his face for 30 minutes and I was like, oh my gosh, I shouldn't have brought him here. And he just didn't give up and he just kept going and laughing at himself on every fall. And then he figured out and he was just cruising for an hour. And those moments are so inspiring to me to see like this is the biggest champion like I can't even walk with this guy on the streets and here he is always willing to learn something new and to be a white belt and not be upset about it there's no resistance in him like he's so fluid you he's know? done that for you your whole life he's been very present my mom so here's the thing my mom lived with him at Helio's house for years when she was young when she was a teenager and she Helio trained my mom Hoist's dad to do presentations with him and to spread the word of jujitsu to the women, which is really interesting. It's almost like I'm actually continuing that side of the legacy because it started sure. with my mom. Sure. There's this photo that Pedro Valente has. He's a great family friend, grew up with us and does beautiful work with jujitsu that he has doing a kick with Helio. And there's only one other photo that is like this that my mom took. And it's my mom doing a high kick with Helio at his house, you know. So she lived with him and he would train her and they would go to the biggest TV networks at the time and they would do demonstrations. He would take her on stage when they were trying to spread the word when nobody knew what jujitsu was. And she would go on high heels and skirt like a woman in society and she would do this jujitsu moves and takedowns and submissions with Helio attacking her and they weren't rehearsed. So he trained her every day at home, but when they went into the network, it was like, okay, you're gonna stand here and we're gonna come from left and right and you're gonna respond to it. So she lived with Hoist for many years, so they became kind of siblings. Mm. So I grew up, you know, my grandfather passed away when I was three and Helio was more of the grandfather figure that I had. Like we grew up at his ranch. I remember we would go swim at his lake and he had all these fish that he didn't allow us to fish because he wanted to. So we would go in and the fish would all like be biting <laughs> us. And, and then he had these huge uh, Brazilian Mastiff dogs. And he had, he had these three dogs that would guard the house and they were in these like big chains. And my mom was telling me this story actually the other day on the phone last week. And she was like, you, one day when you were seven, we all parked in the ranch, we all got out of the car, and the dog came at us, barking at us, at me and your sister, and my younger sister, and she said I was seven, I jumped in front of them, and I started barking back at the dog. <laughs> and she was like, your bark was so serious, the dog ran away. Helio <laughs> was so disappointed, he could not believe his eyes. He was like, this dog is running from a seven-year-old girl? <laughs> how is this massive gonna guard the house? And I was like, they were probably thinking I swallowed one of them. <laughs> I was just like, but I was like so protective and barking at the dog like this. The dog was like, what creature is this? Probably this. Hold on, man, what is this? <laughs> right, but um, Hauf is really close to me. He's definitely somebody that when I'm in trouble, I call, you know, and um, he will show up. Let me tell you, if there are no planes available, he will take a boat. If there are no boats, he will swim to you. He's the most loyal, supportive. Kira is really close to me. Roger, I lived with Roger Gracie for years in London, and my brother, Hannes. I mean, there's so many higher on this new generation, but from the some new generation, the, these guys. <laughs> well, you obviously have that? a million cousins. Yeah, it's hard had, to end. If yeah. I forgot somebody, my phone is Which one ring. are you? <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, answering yeah. your question about the family. So I knew I really had to be specific about how much interference I was going to have. Right. I FaceTimed my mom from Everspace Camp 
but she was thinking I was gonna climb Le Boucher, you know. And it's not—I wasn't lying. I was delivering information mm, on a need-to-know basis. That in your head? You know. <laughs> I um, see how she did that. Sound. Oh yeah. Taking notes. Take that one. Are you writing all this down? <laughs> Keep the names too. But um, so I, I spoke to my siblings. I only called my mom. I know them so well. I only called my mom from the Marriott Hotel in Kathmandu. And then I called her. I had already showered. My face was all burnt. I had blisters all over my mouth. You know, I had the oxygen mask um, mark. And I was pretty beat. But I called her and I was safe. I was in Kathmandu. And I called her. I was like, hey, mom, I have something to tell you. I just summited Mount Everest. And she was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. How'd you do that? And, but she was, it lasted like, it was a less than five-minute phone call, which I was kind of shocked. And she hung up. And I was like, oh, wow, this was easier than I thought. <laughs> Fast forward, 20 minutes passed by. And my phone rings again. I was like, oh, she probably told my dad. And I answer, and she's freaking out. She's losing. She was like, oh, my God, I just realized what you did. Yeah. And she's talking She was about, talking without listening. She was like, yeah, oh. babe, I, yeah, I got you. So she was good. talking about every single thing that could have gone wrong. And I was like, mom, I'm safe. I'm back. It's over. Yeah. I'm at the hotel. She's like, yes, but you could have this way. Like, how come? You should have told your parents. Like, I was like, yeah, you would, you would have come to Nepal, wouldn't you? Like, yeah. You know? and, but she was, and she. She was like, I'm freaking out. I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. Why would you do that? I'm like, it's done. It's done. And I was trying. And I was like, can you imagine what her reaction would be? I was like, mom, I'm going. I'm going to track 65 she kilometers. So never. if I run out of signal and connection. like, I think you hooked her up anyway. Sounds yeah. like she went through the whole gamut oh, right then and there my. and back out. Yeah. But at least I avoided Just my dad. Just the thought of your child yeah. doing it. I mean, I. Yeah. Just the thought. She was like, you're always doing it. Because I always do this. Like. I went bungee jumping. I told her afterwards. Mm -hmm. I went skydiving. I told her afterwards. Yeah. So she, 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 now she's more nervous. She's always like, "Where? What are you up to?" <laughs> yeah, there's a gap. I got heard from. What? What are you doing? Yeah, you're not bored, are you? <laughs> That's it, exactly. Oh my um, gosh, what an incredible story! So when you get story. down, so after going through something like that, and then coming back into into the hotel in Kathmandu, is it kind of like a gray day? Is it just like a melon? What do you What are you feeling? It was really weird. Yeah, so now I feel good to be really honest. Like I summited on the 23rd of May and I feel only now I'm able of talking about this expedition without crying. Mm. You know, it was really hard. I would I just some people told me, "Oh, you came back with PTSD." And I didn't know what it was, but not comparing by any means what no, don't, you know. Just go. Yeah, you're good. What you guys go through. I think it's just what happens to your nervous system because the the thing is I remember on my first nights at Everest Base Camp, there were avalanches every day. Like you are in a place where you're surrounded by mountains. It's not just Everest. You have Lhotse, you have Nupse, you have Pomori, you have Lobuche, you have like all these mountains. And there's always avalanches happening. And, and if you never heard one, they got their own. I've never name. heard one. That was my first mountain. So I remember at night in the sleeping bag and you're already like base camp is like minus 18, minus 20 Celsius. Like you're already every stressor in the environment high altitude, you're dehydrated, like you're constantly, your body is already dealing with all of that. Plus you're sleeping and then out of the blue, you just hear this noise like, and I would get out of my sleeping bag, get out of my tent and run outside to like check, is it coming at me? Cause you don't know, like what, what do I do? Do I run? And I noticed like I was the only person always outside and I was like, these people are weird. Yeah. Nobody comes out to see. And then as it kept happening every night, and I mean, I was, I was in Nepal for 50 days. I was in the mountain for 38 days. You know, I started realizing, oh, 
they would rather not know because there's nothing we can do. So nobody yeah. comes outside to see, is this yeah. avalanche coming my way? Well, hopefully not, but why would I leave anyways? So it was interesting that as time went by, I became that person that would hear a rock fall, that would hear an avalanche and wouldn't leave. But that has an effect on you. Mm -hmm. And the other situations that I went in the mountain when I was caught first avalanche coming back down between camp one, camp two and camp one, then the avalanche going up between base camp and camp one, the crevasse, all the things that happened, and then seeing the bodies. It's, it's just your nervous system is already always on alert because... Yeah, you're, you never come out even when you're you sleeping. You never, right, right. never, right? Like an avalanche can strike at any moment. And even though you're sleeping, like somehow your senses are so heightened. Sure. Like guard. you can hear things happening so far, but you're constantly detecting things because you're in survival mode. It's just like being in war. Yeah. That's what they told me. It was yep. like your nervous system was ignited, was heightened for so long. You can go from so sleep long. and just come straight up and just without... You got, you got to be ready. Yeah, that's what that is. And that in itself is the PT... That's what that is. Yeah. That's if you want to get that hammered in there, you know what that's like. That's yeah. that, that's what that was. So I came back with you know, just random emotion. I would start crying out of the blue, and then I would get really sleepy, and I would sleep for three days in a row without knowing why I was so tired. And then I lost twenty two pounds on this expedition. Great so, diet. Like, mm -hmm. best thing ever. Best you know. <laughs> And I was eating a lot, but yeah, like I, you know, my my body was so weak, my body was so depleted. So I think it's the combination of your body being depleted, your nervous system being completely exhausted, and then you trying to process everything you went through and trying to understand who are you now on the other side because you're yeah. never the same person. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like walking into the gym and working out that entire time, and as soon as you come back down is when you start to feel it. And I mean, every step, every breath, every ounce of pain and pressure, you don't feel it up there. Mm -hmm. It's when you come back down. And you that, can't because if you, you allow yourself yeah, to you'll feel... Die. Yeah, you'll you, die. You'll die. That's right. I don't ever talk about that part either. He's like, hey, you think the hard part is coming down a mountain and then when you get off of it. It's like with the military too. It's like, hey, you know, you sign up. You, that's walking into the gym. Imagine doing a, a jiu-jitsu match the entire time. And then when you come out of there, then you'll know what you did. You'll understand. And then coming back and ha just nobody understands what you went through. Yeah. You're not with the mountaineers anymore. Like the people that were actually with you when the avalanche came and you stood back up and you looked at each other and you're like, you just. Oh, that, that you know, changes people too. That, that develops something if, when you go through some stuff like that. Yeah, with each other. And then you come back into the real world. Absolutely. Right. And then you're like, yeah, I can tell you how I'm feeling, but you won't really understand. Like, you don't, like, for you, like, people won't understand what it was like to lose people, to be in a situation that you're literally like, you were so close to death that how do you tell that to some, somebody who never had a near That's, death? It's experience. being close to God. You're not in control. I'm going to kill you in a second. What are you going to do? Are you? Who are you going to yell at? Can you explain the void again? I yeah. love what you said right before we got started. Yeah, like the, the void. The void. The, what you live in, those interim moments, that they don't talk about them, but they exist. You can't explain them, and you see them all the time, and it's in, in the moments. And if you, you can actually capture those when you do it enough. And then what happens is you start to live in the, in the void, and you see things as how they really are as opposed to when you're trying to put them together. And it, it takes time, and somebody just likes to point it out. But it comes through the martial way. We've been trained for it your whole life. And it's kind of like at the end part. You got the, the ground game, the water, the earth, the fire. And then life in itself is that fire. And then we hit you with it. You know, boom. But you're right. When you get up there and you're coming out, like, what are you going to? There's a simplicity in that. 
makes you appreciate everything else. So speaking of that, I, I mean, talk martial arts science with you all day. I yeah, think I'm so impressed. I think there should be a. Com- I think there should be another. You get all the great martial martial science, martial martial artists, anybody. We should all meet up somewhere and everyone just put their two cents in. And, and right. that would be amazing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like somewhere where we just have the best time, because you know it'd be peaceful. <laughs> it would it be, would, the, be mo- the most peaceful oh, dude, place on earth. It would be the most earth. peaceful place on earth. <laughs> Probably have great food, a great time to sit down yeah. there and talk about all that and rewrite the books. Like, hey, oh, wow. this is what we everyone's learned it. over what. All the wars and all the stuff that we've been yeah. having to deal with our entire lives. He won't talk about it, but I'll brag on him. He was excellent at karate and other martial arts, but karate was his um, specialty. And it's just a, it's just a way of life that I think that everybody. Should. I was blessed, to, fortunate enough to have access to it. Around here, a lot of his, a lot of people know I grew him weak. from I'm that. I was a little bitty yeah. man. I didn't have any skills or anything like that. And I, even with my son. This is the best. This is the best way I can explain this. Is we're out. He, he loves to play basketball, but he he rode the bench the entire first season, which is fine with me. That's that's rare. I was like, it's fine. But then I asked him one day. I was like, son, when I watch you on the court practice, it's like you do all this head stuff, head moving, you're dribbling. Like you, I I can see the fire in you. I was like, when we get to the court, what happens? He's like, confidence, dad. I just don't have it. <laughs> I mean, he hit me with it straight, straight out, <laughs> which I loved. And I was like, okay, let me take you to the schoolhouse. It's got it. Just so drove right down to the jujitsu schoolhouse, and I was like, "This is where you find confidence, because if you can play in here, you can play anywhere else." And I not only believe that, I've road tested it, and I'm a living proof of it. And so are you. And look at the things that you do. It's like people don't have problems that that, uh, or we don't have problems other people have because of the background we have. That's the best way I can say it. And I've been to hell and back. So have you. And what was the consequence for your son? Did he find that confidence? He's in the middle of it because it's yeah. a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. And I, you know, take him in there. I show him some stuff. He's been into there. He's like, he's going to get his butt whipped, and didn't like it. And I was like, welcome to life, son. Yeah, and that's like, why it's so important because it's a never-ending journey. Never-ending. People think like, oh, I'm just going to sign up for this amount of time. We all need those reminders. I told him it's a, a life place. thing. It's for life. He takes him to different gyms too, so he's not comfortable in one spot. And just the minute he gets comfortable and around the people, I'm like, boom! I'll switch it up. <laughs> How's it keep him around the meanest suckers we got? <laughs> and that, my father did that to me, and it works. It's a, they're just mean because you're not mean enough to be around them. And it's just that that's their style, and I, I think that's the glorious part of life. And that's what jiu-jitsu gives you. It gives you a key into opening somebody up. One, you don't have to I'm not talking about fighting them either. I'm just talking about confidence. They can feel that. The conversations are completely different with somebody when they have that. As a... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have to say that I think the most impressive thing about our conversation today regarding martial arts that I rarely find these days is when the person on the other side understands the philosophy behind it because that was the most important thing about martial arts was Period. the philosophy. And the I way. feel like it's being lost a little oh, bit. I, and I could go with you all day on that one too, man. Yeah. Episode number two. It. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. The philosophy That's of what martial I wanted arts. to do. I mean, I, I wasn't invited yeah, yet, but I'll yeah, be back. <laughs> it's gone long, but I do want to ask. Yeah, I'm sorry. Are you, um, after this, are you hungry for more extreme adventures like Mike McCastle does? <laughs> Interesting question. I never plan those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I stay on my path. And when I see that a challenge presented itself to me that will help enrich my journey and make me a better person in my own environment that I take that on. When I was presented with the opportunity of climbing, the first thing that came into my mind was, why am I gonna do this? 
is it going to be more useful than me being here teaching, doing what I'm doing, sharing these principles, guiding these girls? Is my absence going to be justified by what I bring back? If not, then the answer is no. And at the time, I had that constant thought in my head of going, well, how can I be worthy of asking my students and these girls to be brave, to have the courage to face challenges and to face themselves and to grow and to be open to the spontaneity of the universe and the opportunities that come their way if I'm not willing to do the same. Mm -hmm. I have to be willing to do the same. I have to constantly put myself as a student in something. So am I going to climb another mountain? Am I going to do a traverse? Am I, who knows? I am very strongly connected to my journey of spreading the principles and the philosophy of jiu-jitsu to as many girls and women as I possibly can. My mountain now, my Everest, is setting up our headquarters in LA. So I'm looking for no locations, negotiating leases, and building the first school of empowerment because my methodology is a holistic approach to jiu-jitsu, self-defense, and psychology. We do a lot of verbal role-playing and exercises and drills, which is the hardest part. You know, the, the verbal jiu-jitsu that we do in class which is the first part of class, women are sweating, they're blushing, and we haven't even started moving. You're just learning how to use those tools to set boundaries, to communicate so your important. feelings, and we struggle with that. So Guys do that growing up. We talked about that earlier. Like, y'all don't do that, but we do. And we do. Like, we're taught that, to go back and forth. And that's a martial art in itself. Probably the best one. How do you deal with conflict? That's you know, it. If I you mean, know you, how to use your body and your voice, you will probably not need to oh, use the skills. 100%. Yeah. One, you won't, right? Getting the skills gives you the voice that you don't have, the timid ones. But once they figure out what they're driving, it's like, oh, you want to hear this horn? You want to hear me roar? That's fine. That's exactly what that is. Yeah, but I even for you. guys, like if you accidentally go, you know, you're driving and a guy rear-ends you and he gets out of his car super mad, is exactly what you said, even talking about breathing, but exactly. your posture, hey, calm down, step back, we're going to take care of it, breathe. Like 100%. You're setting a boundary where a woman will freak out and the guy now is screaming at your face mm -hmm. and you're shaking and you're crying and then you get in your car and you're traumatized from it because you said, hey, step back. Don't come any closer. I'm going to take care of it. And now you know you are in control of the distance and you're setting the dynamic where you're making yourself safe in that situation. Where for a guy, he might not hesitate to go like, hey, don't come any closer. Yeah. Well, that's what a guy's you know? freak out is. When they get out of that truck barking like that, that's they're freaked out. A guy who's not freaked out, I'll give him, are you okay? But he has no training. You know, you always know that. However you're feeling, if they throw the same action out, that's what's going on in their head. Our daughter, plain and simple. When she was, I'll like, give you all that little insight in a man code right there. <laughs> when yeah, our daughter true. was it like is. three years old, somebody said something super aggressive to her. I don't remember what it was, but her response, very aggressively back, said, "Prove it." And it is one of the funniest things that she continuously does. And so anytime someone's saying something or barking, she just calls them out on it. And we freaking love it. We She's like, so you hear somebody like, oh, I can do this. I can do that. She would prove it. Yeah. <laughs> but Let's freaking see it. And yeah, would you, would you, yeah. Like, <laughs> and those, those Everest climbs and everything that you do, those set the examples of what you've trained. Yeah, you're it's proving like, it. Yeah. You're proving what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. A lot of teachers don't have that. Like, hey, I, I see all this stuff you got written down for me to look at, but what does it do for you? Mm -hmm. and, and Everest is a qual. I mean, a big one. 
And people who go through some things that have difficulty, they know how difficult other things are. It's a lot of suffering. <laughs> I'll tell you that. There is a lot of joy and glory, but there is a lot of suffering behind, which is a part of life. You know, it's, we, we can't live in this unrealistic ideal of utopia, thinking like, oh, the, and that's part of the anxiety and depression is, especially this young generation, not knowing how to deal with their emotions. Yeah. That's why, like, yeah. you're on the mats. That's normal. Yeah. Suffering is normal. Yeah. You know, knowing how to pull yourself out of that suffering yeah. is what matters you know like it's easy to yeah, enjoy the really sun suffer. but like yeah. you, it's a lot of suffering and you know so many people are like oh you Everest you pay and they take you there and I'm like all these comments came from people that had never climbed an 8,000 yeah, yeah, meter yeah. mountain you know if you've right. been in the death zone yeah. you know everybody is struggling you know and you can <laughs> hear it when they talk to you they're like I know that comment they didn't make it yeah. this one you <laughs> did no and you always yeah. click and you're like let me see how many 8,000 meters they right, have right, climbed right. and it's like zero, you know, but you can't listen to those comments. There's always going to be naysayers in life. And we change, we, we, we've been talking about our, the motto around here now is a little suffering goes a long way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of truth in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're keeping you. What yeah, time is that? We going long? Yeah. I'm, I'm happy to continue yeah. if you have any we, questions. Well, I so I do want to finish up with um, what you're doing now. So you've got the school. You're trying to build this big empowerment center, and you're going around and actually doing um, empowerment retreat type things, right? Does it have to be LA. I mean, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Why not Texas? Why not Texas? Find you know, an incredible you, you, location here, undeniable. And, I'm about to uh, show it to I'm you open. right after we get done here. Okay, I'm open to it. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. So are you planning on spreading that outside of L.A.? Are you wanting to, like, franchise out or... So I'm setting up the headquarters in L.A. of this program for girls and women. Mm -hmm. And we'll see what happens. We'll cross that bridge when we get there. If I'll license the methodology, if I'll franchise it. The reality is... I want to make it as easy as possible for people to have access to this methodology. So there are different ways that I apply that. One is in my school, in the ongoing programs that I have, that I currently lease a space, but I'm building our headquarters, so it's our home, and girls and women from all over the world, they know where can, they can go and actually see and experience a place that was built for us, you know? And then on... In parallel with that, I do a lot of corporate training where I use the principles of jiu-jitsu applied to everyday life. And that's tailored according to each company. And I, I work with the Four Seasons and, you know, companies from tech companies and all over the place, which is really interesting because it's teaching self-confidence to teams. It's communication skills. But when you have the confidence in yourself, you solve so many problems in the team. And when you know how to apply the principles and when you get you know, your team to think about their foundation, to they can be in charge of the distance. So you start unloading HR because now you're just understanding better what your role is in the situations as yeah. well. And it's a, it's a philosophy right. for life. Mm -hmm. and, and then I do similar retreats for women where I travel, you know, I've traveled to five continents teaching them. And, and then now that I came back from Everest, I built this, this keynote that like you said, it's proof that the principles of jiu-jitsu work and how is that applied outside of the mats and how I applied that in mountaineering in this specific scenario. But I've been doing a lot of corporate talks and it's something that I'm wanting to get into more because it's a space that 
we still don't have a huge presence, but there is a huge demand. And I think we can cause incredible impact if we spread the word in that direction as well. So those are my three focus now, building the headquarters, doing more keynotes, and doing more corporate training to also start implementing the philosophy and the principles of jiu-jitsu in places that are not living and breathing that and sh absolutely should and could benefit tremendously from it. Like I in mean, schools. in the school thing, that's yeah. that's the biggest one. Is what, what you, yeah. I mean, I get the other stuff, that's, but the school ones, that thing, that is hit, because I have a daughter yeah. now, it would hit hard. I mean, I and have And she goes to a whole... private school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is even a... It's easier to easier. get into it's private a, schools, a right? Easier. So that's, that's my life dream and my life goal. I have this methodology that is, it's a limited methodology because you're not going to build a plan for schools that it's going to take them to black belt, right? It's, can you teach the most important principles for these kids in school and start implementing that, even if it begins Well, they can as take a, it home and then it'll... Take it home. Yeah, and that's the thing about my program. So I created a character and I tell stories in the beginning of every class. And those stories carry out a principle that becomes their homework. Mm -hmm. So every week when we get together, they have to share a story on how they practiced that principle. And we talk about everything from compassion to inclusion to strength and courage and every story has the underlying principles so the first story is the posture of the champion and the theme is courage then we talk about the strongest man in the village and it's about strength but it's actually teaching you that you can be strong in your heart in your body and in your mind because we tend to value certain types of strength and then undervalue other types and sometimes sure. your kid they're not built physically and they navigate the world thinking they're weak but if they understand what is jiu-jitsu jiu-jitsu is first being strong in your heart you never give up you listen to yourself you you conduct yourself in a way that honors yourself instead of going against your beliefs to please other people like that is being strong in your heart being strong in your mind you can be extremely intelligent creative the world is run by these people and when they understand oh i'm actually really strong it doesn't matter if they say that you're physically weak or that you know who you are therefore you're going to apply strength and you're going to increase your strength in that area so we have all those discussions. It's really interesting to see their exchanges because it's when they get to learn from each other and that's the most important thing. Like this whole block of my class from the one hour class, 15 minutes is seven and a half taking them through the storytelling and seven and a half is discussing the principle and hearing how they applied it. And you know, I have a little script because it's important for them to not only learn and hear the story but to know, oh, I have to live it. I want them to live the principles of jujitsu before anything else. Well, the scenario will present itself. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay, I'm teaching you this. When you go home, you're going to hear this conversation. This or this might show up. How are you supposed to react? Yeah. I mean, if I mean, you give them an option already, totally. that's the biggest fear. Yeah. If something presents and you're like, how am I supposed to act? Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. One of the stories, that's from the second season um, when Jiu-Jitsu got to Brazil. Because I tell the stories. I'm telling the history, the story of Jiu-Jitsu through the eyes of this girl. And in within are embedded the Jiu-Jitsu principles. So one of the stories is inclusion. And we go through the script and I ask them, I tell the story about inclusion. This girl looked different. She didn't have a leg. Therefore, she didn't train Jiu-Jitsu. And they end up including her in the training. It transforms her life. Because we realize that we value the things that we do have instead of focusing on what we don't have. That is the underlying theme. So then when we talk about inclusion, we go through the script and we are in a circle. So in this moment, we're all equals. We're, we can all see each other. And 
they get to learn from each other and they're practicing public speaking. They're, and I always, when they talk really low, voice of the champion, coming the superpower, coming from your belly, project your voice. So they're learning a skill from psychology, from projecting their voice that is the biggest fear in the world is public speaking, yeah. you know? You and when we, we go through that, so first I ask them, so what, what does inclusion mean? And then they all say what inclusion means. What is the opposite of inclusion? Oh, excluding, not letting people join your group. Okay, who here has felt excluded in their lives? And they all raise their hands, like, I felt excluded. We all have felt. And then I said, and who here has excluded someone? And then they all look around, who's going to raise their hands first? But this is an opportunity for them to self-analyze, right? I'm not going to say, you have, I've seen it. But then one raises their hand, and then the other one is like, I Rhetorical have. Rhetorical question, we know you all have. Yeah, <laughs> but if you have the awareness that you are the one that is rejecting other people, you are being presented with an opportunity to change your behavior. Sure. I don't want just the girls that walk through my door are the ones that are suffering bullying. Like, I know the bully is also in my class. I have a class with 20, 30 girls. The bully is also there. They're not all victims. But yeah. the bully is also a kid that has either suffered trauma or negligence at home or has present, has witnessed aggression. And now they're being brought in an environment where they have the opportunity to self-assess and go like, yeah, I exclude girls all the time. I'm, I mean, yeah. like, I should change that. Yeah. And that the bully becomes the protector and the one that is inclusive, you yeah. know? So this is the process to me that is the most fulfilling, that is the most enriching, is then seeing them give examples of how did you practice inclusion this week? Yeah. Oh, I included my younger sister in the play date that I have that I never want her around. Oh, I included my mom in this thing that like she's always asking me if she, you know, if I wanted to go with her and I know. So then they start learning different ways of, oh, I went to talk to the girl in my class that doesn't have any friends. So now they're hearing from each other, girls, their same age. And it's so funny because you start seeing them giving advice to each other. Aww. And I'm like holding myself not to laugh. <laughs> and I'm like, let it happen. This is something. But it's, you know, amazing to see that now... It's almost like I can remove myself and just watch them existing. They created their own environment. Building that, that bond. That comes with training, too. A lot of teachers don't understand to identify the bully, which where that word comes from is from a bull. There's is the it? bull in the pen, oh. meaning you have an alpha child in there with the regulars. Mm -hmm. And when they do that, if you don't train your bull, then the little ones will go back home and act like that because that's what a bull does. And let me tell you something. Bulls don't have to explain themselves. They don't even know they're doing it. Now, if, they, if they're not taught dis discipline like we're taught and they pick on, that's the worst. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what happens to them is when they get beat down, it affects them the worst. Yeah. So, I mean, when that, that was where that word bully comes from. You got the bull child in there. Mm. So if, if you're a, an alpha female or an alpha male, especially the alphas, you got to, my mother always said, if you got a wild child, put them around wild Mustangs. Can't talk to them. Mm -hmm. It'll settle them down faster than anything. Perfect world, you could separate the bulls, but you actually need one in there. That could be your next thing, taming you know a wild I mean? mustang. Like, what? Yeah. Once you see them and identify them and, and, and label coaches them. coaches for that? Yeah. In a good way. Like if you're like, hey, you're, my, you're obviously my alpha. I need you to lead. I need you to be kind instead of mean. You, you can't believe what that does for them. Because then people resonate to that, especially children. Mm -hmm. Well, aggression comes out of insecurity. Yeah. The bullies are the most, most insecure. Sure. Mm -hmm. They don't know what they are. And they're trying to figure it out, especially if they're big. I mean, you know, children's has got to be the toughest part of life. Yeah. Being a freaking kid, man. So how do people follow you and help promote you, attend your um, 
Yeah, what can we do to help? Retreats, yeah. <laughs> like, what can our, how can our listeners get involved with you? Yeah, so my website is under development. Should be released in a month, hopefully. It's cesselina.com. But my social media, my Instagram is where I'm the most present. Is Cessa Gracie, C-E-S-A-G-R-A-C-I-E. It's where I share most more content like this and tips and, you know, my journey and the things that I'm learning and on, on the way. And, um, yeah, let's see how you guys can help. Maybe we'll yeah. talk about it. <laughs> we get you an awesome. app up there that you, we can just hit on. It's like, hey, I got a question if this happens to me. I feel like this. What do I do? That would be you, amazing. If you, if you can hear it from, from the alpha females. And, like, you know who they are, too. So if you have, like, a board of directors of them, yeah. all these girls have some guidance. Instead of cameo with celebrities yes. wishing a happy yes. birthday, maybe you actually have some, some advice, constructive advice. Something constructive to say. Yeah. yeah. If you had, oh, this happened to me, listen to this. And this is what I did. And I got buddies, I'll call them up. Even when, when it comes to discipline my kids, I'm like, hey, my, my son did this. I know your kid did it a couple of years back. What did you do and what should you have done? Mm-hmm. He used that one on I know you've done that to me before. <laughs> <laughs> I called him up. I was like, hey, bro, I remember doing this when we were in college. I'm not going to get into it on the air here, but my son just pulled it off. <laughs> what do I do? And he's like, this is what dad did to me, but he should have done this. I mean, he came out with it like that. And I was like, all right, really? He's like, yeah, it'll work. And I was like, all right. How valuable is having that resource? So valuable. That's why they're there. I mean, if you go through something with somebody and they, and they stick beside you and they're just, I don't want nothing from you, but they've, they're kind of walking their path sim- and similar to you. It comes in, it alleviates alleviate stress. I mean... Well, I know that we tried to plan um, a demonstration or whatever for this weekend, and it was just crazy with everyone's schedules. But I would love to have you back out to Texas and do a women empowerment retreat out here. Um, I really feel like it would do really well, and so many people would benefit from it. So we just need to sure you have a great time plan way, and, way ahead of time. But yeah. um, I really, if you're up for that, I think that 100%, would be awesome. 100%, let's do it. And those retreats, they start with a self-defense jiu-jitsu philosophy class, and then we dive into breath work. We do nervous system regulation. There's an opportunity for Q&A. Then we do a psychology circle, and we discuss a theme. Every event has a theme. So it's such a beautiful space to be in, and nobody has any experience with jiu-jitsu, really. Nobody's coming to learn how to fight. They're coming to learn something that they're going to be able to apply in their lives. And, you know, it's women from all all walks of life, and I've done... In so many states, but never in Texas. Never in Texas. So, so. we we have We're something. Located. We have something that we call "She Never Quit" instead of "Team Never Quit," and we've done these women empowerment retreats with guns, and it's actually all self defense weapons as far as guns, knives, archery, mm-hmm. and it was so much fun. Um, so to include what you have on top of that would just be. Like 60 or 70 of the best <laughs> ladies at, at firearms and knives and killing and all that stuff well, like that. And then the best lady at teaching yeah. jujitsu. They're, they're just in one spot. Yeah. Let's do it. Call me in. Yeah. I want to take part in every other activity and learn as well. Yeah. I mean, everything that, that we've done, our instructors are Olympians and world champions at whatever they're teaching, whether it's handgun or rifle or shotgun or archery or knife throwing, whatever it is. And so to have you doing the jujitsu yeah. portion or we even just the out. philosophy on jujitsu would just be oh, the ultimate in. thing. Yeah. That's yeah. the most valuable thing is somebody coming in 
without knowing what to expect and then leaving realizing that they're capable of so much more than they thought they would be yeah. before they walk through that door. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate so you. Thank yes. you for yeah. having me. <laughs> what an interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you so much, Cecilina, for coming down. Uh, we really appreciate it. And for the listeners, if you have any guest recommendations, we would love to hear who you have. We'll go check them out, and we will see you next week. Bye.